hi from the future. You're hearing editing Alexis right now because recording Alexis made a couple of mistakes and I wanted to just jump in to amend those really quick. For one, I said that Herman Melville was born the year that the incident occurred, which would have been 1820. He was actually born the year that Essex departed Nantucket, which would have been 1819. I also also say at one point, that the Essex crew ends up collecting 600 tortoises from the Galapagos Islands. I don't know where I got that number from because it was actually 280 tortoises, which I would argue is still too many tortoises, but it was not it was not 600. I think that I just saw 600 somewhere in my research and my monkey brain glommed onto it because it was a big number. All that being said, I also realize I completely and utterly neglected to introduce myself, my guest, and just the podcast itself. So let's fix that right now. For one, my name's Alexis. I am the host, editor, writer, producer, everythinger of Geographic. My guest this week was my wonderful big brother, Anthony, who very graciously agreed to help me out with this. And as for the podcast itself, Geographic is a labor of love delivered from one nature enthusiast to other fellow nature enthusiasts, and also those who aren't, because it's my hope that with this pod, I can not only entertain you, but also educate you about why animals and humans come into conflict and demystify some of these events that paint some animals out to be monsters. That being said, we don't only cover animal attacks, but also, without giving too much away, things like mysterious deaths and disappearances in the wild, survival stories, natural disasters, and pretty much anything spooky or intriguing or unexplained pertaining to the wild. And I think that should tie up all the loose ends I left from this week's recording. I feel it's important to note I also planned for this episode to be an hour and a half, didn't end up happening. It's uh, just over two hours. Uh, So first episode's a long one, which I'm sorry for, but I hope that you are enthralled the entire time. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. And I hope you enjoyed enough to tune in next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that, because I've got a whole lot planned. Without further ado, and before I make this episode longer than it already is, which it's pretty long, I present to you the first episode of Geographic, the story of the whaleship Essex. Uh, Thanks for listening, and I really hope you like it. Enjoy the episode. Hello. Hello, brother. And anyone listening, thank you for joining the inaugural episode of Geographic. I feel like it's imperative to begin this by saying, first and foremost, I am not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with National Geographic or the YouTube channel Geographics. I don't know them, um, but that I just want to get that out of the way first, just in case... They come for me legally because I don't have, I have $200 in my bank account and I can't fight that legally. Anyway, <laughs> that being said, 
I'm going to tell you a cool story about a, a ship that got sunk by a whale. I like stories about sinking ships. I know you do. I'm pretty sure you were some kind of sailor in a past life, <laughs> so that's why I thought you'd be perfect for this. I'm also a little bit sick right now, so I'm not going to sound like this next week, God willing. Um, but if I do... She'll sound worse. I'll sound way worse. It doesn't help that I'm drinking cold water. You're supposed to drink warm stuff, but I don't want to. Anyway... I'm going to tell you a ship story. I've like rehearsed how many times I want to start this, but actually doing it is so weird. You know, there are a lot of different kinds of ship stories. <laughs> There's a lot of different there kinds of ship stories, I know. ship stories. There are. Little ship stories. Yeah, those are just called boat stories. The best ship stories are friendship <laughs> stories. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Well, to get into it, like I said, it's a ship story, and the ship sinks, sadly, unfortunately. I'll just give it to you right off the bat. The ship does not make it to the end of this story. The ship sinking is a pivotal part of the story, though. And to begin, I want to talk about uh, the star of the show, the culprit, if you will, which is a very special animal called a sperm whale, a.k.a. Physeter macrocephalus. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced microcephalus and not macrocephalus because that sounds... That sounds like something else. What? Say it. Go ahead. What does it sound like? (laughs) Nothing, Anthony. It doesn't sound like anything to me. Anyway, sperm whales are really, really cool animals. The more that I read about them, the more intriguing they kind of became to me. They're very enigmatic because they are deep diving animals and they spend a lot of their time in very deep water, so they're kind of hard to research. But what I can tell you about them is they're one of 89 known species within the order Cetacea, which includes whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Also found out Cetacea comes from the Greek word ketos, which means whale. I've got one. Uh Uh-huh. They're the largest tooth predator in the world. They are. They are what's called an odontocete, which are the toothed whales. Whale uh, spe- or cetacean species are divided into odontocetes and mystocetes. And odontocetes, you're right, are toothed whales, and they are the largest of all of them. They are the only member of the family Physeteridae, but there's apparently some discourse over whether this family should also include another, another family called Cogiidae which includes pygmy and dwarf sperm whales, which I didn't know existed. And whatever you're picturing, they look exactly like that. So I love the distinction of having both pygmy and, and dwarf, dwarf sperm they're whales. They're two discrete species. They're two separate species. Um, they are, like I mentioned, the largest odontocetes in the world. Adults can range in size from about 11 to 16 meters long, which for our smooth brain... American selves means 36 to 52 feet long. Um, Although I've seen some estimates that put them well over 60 feet. There was another whale that was the partial inspiration for Moby Dick, which this story also surprise inspired Moby Dick. Um, But there was another whale, unfortunately... Just sitting on the edge of my seat here (laughs) waiting for you to continue. Okay, the story of the Essex sinking is what inspired Moby Dick. But there was another instance of a real-life white whale, an albino sperm whale, called, unfortunately, Mocha Dick. 
Don't. No don't. It's because he's he lived. You're, you made that up. No, he lived near the island of Mocha, and that's why he was called that. <laughs> he would. He was known to vex fishermen for many, many years, and. <laughs> I know how it sounds. Okay, look, it's gonna get. What I'm gonna tell you about sperm whales is only gonna get. Because <laughs> sailors really don't here. like sperm whales. Are just calling him Dick. <laughs> I guess so. But he estimates put him at about 70 feet long. And uh, as we're going to get into it, the whale that attacked Essex was even bigger than that. Where does that estimate come from? Um, I think he was eventually caught and measured. In terms of weight, they can get as heavy as 15,000 to 45,000 kilograms, which is about approximate to 33 to 99,200 pounds. So they're big, heavy, big, heavy guys. Heavy enough that those numbers mean nothing off the cuff? Nothing, no. I mean, we can't even, like, humans can't even conceptualize, what is it? Seven. Yeah. <laughs> we can't conceptualize, like, a thousand years in the past. We're probably not going to conceptualize something that's almost 100,000 pounds heavy. The calves at birth can weigh approximately 500 to 1,000 kilograms, which is 1,100 to 2,200 pounds. Just want to put that in perspective real quick. Their mm-hmm. calves are the... Way the same as adult polar bears. Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, they are a species that displays sexual dimorphism, as do most cetaceans. Adult males are significantly larger than females, and they have a much more prominent square head shape. Uh, males are also primarily solitary, and they will migrate further and inhabit, uh, inhabit wider ranges in latitudes closer to the poles. Females and juveniles, they'll inhabit smaller ranges in deep water close to the equator. But I did find something interesting in uh, the source that I got this info from that says even though we consider them solitary, whales could possibly have a different sense of what distance is. So it may be solitary in our sense, but it could be effectively that they have a long-distance relationship with their pod because oh, right can't they communicate over like 10 plus miles they can uh i read somewhere it was a youtube comment so source some guy but i read a youtube comment that says the the sounds they can produce are loud enough that it can vibrate a human to death i don't know how that would be <laughs> i will so, say though that we have that beat because uh i called you before i got here mm-hmm. and you're like 20 miles away so take that sperm whales <laughs> that's true but yeah, it's believed that they can communicate over much longer distances. Um, and in that way, they are still connected as a family unit. What's a long way for us might not be as long for whales, which I thought was really sweet. They're just always together. How do you know you're looking at a sperm whale? Um, they're fucking big. They're huge. As I And square. And square. <laughs> That's right. The source that I found this actually describes them as having... Quote, boxcar-shaped heads, which, yeah, they do. Big old rectangles. <laughs> their head actually occupy, occupies about a third of their entire body length. Um, they're very wrinkly-looking. They look like they've sat in a pool for way too long, and then they had to have their mom yell at them to get out. They also have, I found out, a really interesting uh, blowhole position. Their blowhole is left forward on their head so their spout occurs at an almost 50 degree angle i couldn't find a lot explaining why that is it could be that um when they come up out of the water 
maybe that position is more effective for them to quickly grab a breath and then go back down. Unfortunately for the whales, but very fortunately for whalers, that spout uh, is what tells them it's a sperm whale nearby. And as we're going to get into, sperm whales were very important in the history of whaling. They also have the largest brain of not just any mammal, but of any animal on Earth. And we know that big brain doesn't necessarily mean big smart, but sperm whales, like most cetacean species, are incredibly intelligent. And it's believed that this intelligence has evolved out of... um, It's evolved from the same biological reasons that it evolved in primates and corvids, which is large, complex social groups. And having those higher brain functions is very important when you have to cooperate as a group, remembering relationships between individuals, recognizing individuals. And that would be what's considered an example of something called convergent evolution, which is basically just different species developing the same biological answer to similar biological questions kind of like wings and birds and wings and bats echolocation evolving in bats and in cetaceans Ooh, that's a good one um like i mentioned uh males are quote-unquote solitary um females and juveniles will travel in matriarchal pods of around 30-ish members adult males will like I said, mostly solitary, but they can also form like these small dynamic little bachelor groups where they just kind of come and go in and out of. They are, like I mentioned a little bit, deep ocean hunters. They pretty famously prey on deep welling cephalopods like giant squid and jumbo squid. Do you want to add something? You leaned in a little bit. No, I've got nothing. Oh, okay. (laughs) Do you remember that Monster Quest episode with the giant squid? Um, no. Oh, (laughs) just me word <laughs> i fucking loved monster quest um but they are capable of reaching depths of over 3300 feet and they can emerge remain submerged for over an hour i um one of the videos i watched said that they can stay submerged for up to two hours generally though they'll stay submerged for only about 20 to 15 minutes and at depths of a little over a thousand to two thousand feet that's like what an average hunting depth would be for them how often do they have to hunt So they do have to hunt every day and they eat approximately 3% of their body weight each day in order to sustain their massive size. How exactly often these really deep hunts take place, I'm not super certain. They're also a long-lived species. They have a lifespan of at least least 60 to 70 years. Though, like I said, they're very enigmatic creatures, so they may potentially live longer. Now, Anthony, dear brother... Why do you think they're called sperm whales? Uh, actually, because of, uh, if I remember correctly, it's the reason that they were hunted so prolifically by whalers. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, there is a, a fluid inside their melon, which is yeah. the organ that they use to echo, echo communicate, yes. echolocate, uh, which is basically why they have such big old heads. And the fluid inside the melon uh, closely resembled... Uh, semen. It. Yep. <laughs> so you're right on. Damn it. I kind of hoped you didn't know that and you would say something goofy. You cannot stump me when it comes to a question like that. Shit. <laughs> I should have known, honestly. <laughs> so yes, the name does derive from that, uh, that special organ in their head. It's called a spermaceti organ. And it is filled with this 
like waxy, oily substance that is believed to assist in sound production. It was used as fuel, right? Yes. Fuel and cosmetics. Yes. So spermaceti was, and I'm going to talk about it in a little bit too. This, like you said, was the chief reason they were hunted. Um, It had a variety of applications. Most importantly, though, was the oil used to produce light. Apparently, spermaceti produced the cleanest and brightest flame. Poor guys. They were turned into lamps. Yeah, they were turned into fucking candles. Um, One of the videos I saw also hypothesized that they have the ability to control the density of their spermaceti by Mm. either increasing or decreasing their circulation to that part, to that organ. So by decreasing it, it can make the spermaceti solidify, which will help them to dive. And then by increasing circulation, it heats it up and liquefies it so it becomes less dense than water and it allows them to ascend faster. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Poor man's swim bladder for mammals. (laughs) And yes, you're right. Spermaceti is derived from the old idea that this organ contains semen. Why would they think that? At what point would you cut open a whale's head and think, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where the sperm is kept. Even better, they said, let's put it in lamps. <laughs> oh. Oh, God. oh, old knowledge. <laughs> they were so stupid back then. No, I'm joking. They didn't know things. Now, unfortunately, talking about whales, I do have to talk about whaling. Um, I'm still trying to gauge exactly how much research I need to do for each of these episodes. I went pretty ham in this one because there's a lot of research. I wouldn't be surprised if there's scholars specifically for the subject of the Essex. So now I know entirely too much about the history of the New England whaling industry. And now you're about to also. Sorry. So I'll give you, first I'll give you kind of a an abridged history of whaling globally. As you can imagine, it's a pretty ancient practice. Norwegians have been whaling uh, at least since the first first century AD. Um, Evidence of Icelanders whaling has been found dating back to the 12th century. Is that what you call them? Icelanders? Yeah. What do you call them? I don't know. (laughs) Icelandish? Icelandic? How should I say it? Ices? Yetis. Yetis. (laughs) There were also uh, Biscayans, who are those from the Basque country in Spain, they are also kind of prolific for their whaling prowess. They operated in about the 12th to 15th century. England hopped on a little bit later and began whaling sometime around the 14th century. Indigenous whaling practices predate all of these. Uh, the Inuit in particular were known as very skilled whalers, and today they do still participate in subsistence whaling, which is very small scale. Um, numerous indigenous Canadian, Alaskan, and northern U.S. tribes do this all as well. There are also some uh, indigenous groups in Russia and I believe the Grenadines who also participate. It is very controversial, as I understand. I don't want to get too much into it. That's a can of worms I don't want to open. On yeah, you're not putting the lid on back the on that one. On the first episode. But I will just say... Subsistence whaling differs from commercial whaling in that it's obviously a much smaller operation, and as the name implies, um, a a quota of whales, it's a smaller quota of whales, and it's fulfilled simply to supply a community with what is necessary. They'll use as as many parts of the whale as possible for things like clothes, tools, cultural items. Theoretically, they're all supposed to stay within the tribes. 
there's not a lot of oversight or enforcement of this, from what I understand, but I'm going to leave it there because I don't know enough about it to say more about it. Anyway, back to the Inuit. They are credited with the creation of a... It's a whaling innovation called a toggle harpoon. And the way that it works is it's like a normal harpoon where you stick the poor whale with it and the head of it, there's a mechanism that causes the head of it to swing out. So it can't be easily dislodged from the whale. It would become the industry standard after some improvements were made to the design in 1848 by a man named Lewis Temple. And it was thereon known as Temple's Toggle. The old yeah, it's TV. a cute name for something so horrific. So awful. <laughs> The beginning of the whaling industry in New England can be traced as far back as the arrival of the Mayflower in 1620. Allegedly, when the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, they were like, this place is a fucking bust. It sucks here. They were debating moving the settlement, and one of their reasons for remaining was that, quote, it was a place of profitable fishing for large whales of the best kind for oil and bone came daily alongside and played about the ship. So they were like, Hanging around. This place is awful. It's full of fucking Puritans, but hey, at least there's whales. (laughs) They were like, let's not be too hasty. I saw something in the water. Um, Whaling would eventually become such a large part of of the colonial colonial economy that colonial authorities would establish several whaling laws before the end of the 17th century. I need to drink water. I'm making gross gross mouth noises. Now, were they targeting sperm whales specifically, or was it pretty much like open season and pilot whales? Mm, I'll get into that. Grays, blues. I'll get into that actually in a second. Uh, In New England, whaling would take place offshore until around the end of the 17th century, early 18th century-ish. And primarily what they would hunt were right whales. These were very abundant off of New England shores. Right whales, I found, unfortunately gained their name because they were known as being the right whales to hunt because they have a high blubber content. That means more oil can be produced of them. It also means they float when they die. They're very slow moving. They're surface feeders. They have big, beautiful, trusting eyes. So <laughs> they were, these were the primary targets of offshore, offshore whaling. And then there comes a little place. I'm going to introduce you to a little crescent-shaped island about 30 miles off the southeast coast of Massachusetts. The Fire Nation. Up close. It was one of the most prominent and prosperous, prosperous whaling ports in the world while in its prime. And it's a little island called Nantucket. Nantucket is apparently derived from the Wampanoag language, and it means the faraway land. And this is going to be the setting of our story, but... I forgot we were telling a boat story. Yeah, it's a boat Like I said, I was trying to supply a brief history of whaling, but there's so much whaling history. Too much, I dare say. As a lover of whales, I will assert. I'll put a hard line on that. There's too much whaling history. Um... Nantucket's whaling history begins in 1668. Apparently a whale just entered the harbor and stayed long enough for them to kill it. Whaling is pretty deeply embedded in Nantucket culture, and Nantucket whalers were renowned in the industry. One of the sources notes um, that Nantucket was pretty synonymous with whaling anywhere it was spoken. Offshore fishing was very successful due to, like I said, the Gulf Stream would bring abundant whales near the Massachusetts, near Massachusetts' southern shores. It was, in fact, Nantucketer 
A man named what? A Nantucketer. That's what they are, Nantucketer. That's so dumb. <laughs> don't, 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 don't want them to come for me. They're a very insolent. You're not people. a whale. No. <laughs> At least I don't think so. They're they're a very Nantucket. They're a very proud people. I'll say that. What are they going to fly three thousand miles to kick my ass? I don't. <laughs> I wouldn't put anything. Probably past that's them. not an invitation, Nantucketers. I just think that. <laughs> Please don't. Anthony loves New England. He's a big the, Patriots you fan. You chose a very silly name for yourself. <laughs> anyway, it was a Nantucketer, Christopher Husey. He was the first New Englander to capture a sperm whale in 1712, and he began the trend of whaling what is known in the deep, which is exactly what it sounds like. You're, not lo- you're no longer offshore whaling within sight of the coastline. You're heading deeper, further out, and fishing deeper. Another Nantucketer, uh, a man named Captain Paul Worth of the Beaver, was his ship. Huh. He unofficially opened the Pacific. <laughs> I know, they have goofy ship names. Just live with it. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway. Sailing on the Beaver hunting for spermaceti. <laughs> he unofficially opened the Pacific to Nantucket whaling exploits. This is why I can't take you seriously, Nantucketers. Well... You might be able to take this seriously. Uh, he rounded Cape Horn and returned with a uh, yield of whale oil valued at 11,000 pounds sterling, which today... It's so like $22 million million. No, not as that much. It's $2,729,062.20. I also read that native fishermen were very important in the Nantucket whaling industry. Um... Many natives were employed in the fishery. Each boat would be either partially or completely comprised of native fishermen. Once they moved to, once the ships began to move to deep water hunting, there would still be at least one on board, and he would generally serve as a harpooner, which is a very dangerous position that requires a lot of skill. I'm going to explain it a little bit further later. I keep saying that, but I'm, I'm front loading all of the boring shit. Just so that when we get to the exciting stuff, it's more exciting. We're min-maxing this podcast. Uh, Native fishermen were so important to the industry that in 1709, Parliament, because Parliament still was in charge of things over here at that time, they passed an act called the Encouragement of Whaling Act. It basically said that Native fishermen on whaling voyages couldn't be arrested or kept out of employment because of any other contracts or obligations. If they were found, also, with according to this act, if they were found drinking while under employment, uh, their employer would be fined. <laughs> there are some references to this trend of native, native fishermen on whaling boats in Moby Dick. There's two characters, Teshtego, who is uh, Wampanoag, which is what, in the Nantucket industry, these fishermen would have been. They would have been men of the Wampanoag Nation. And there's also a principal character named Queequeg. He is, he's meant to reflect more Polynesian heritage, but they both serve as harpooners on the Pequod, which is the name of the ship in Moby Dick, and is also a reference to the Pequod tribe, who are indigenous to New England. Now, what were these whalers risking their lives for exactly when they were hunting whales? Primarily, it was going to be whale oil. 
Whale oil is the rendered down blubber of a whale that is used in a variety of products from leather to lanterns, and it became increasingly more important with the rapid industrialization that accompanied the 19th century. So they would use it for machinery, fuel, candles. Um, light was becoming much more important as towns and cities got bigger. If that kind of sounds lame, like, oh, it's just, they were doing all this to light places. If you've ever walked down a street where there's no street lights <laughs> at night, you'll understand why. It was used a lot in cosmetics too. Wasn't it, it was, yes. I think lipsticks was the primary was the primary cosmetic product. There was also whale bone, which I found out is not the whale's actual bones. This is baleen. So they would use whale bone, aka baleen which are those big sheets that baleen whales have in their mouth that they filter feed with. Um, whalebone had numerous uses from clothing, particularly corsets and hat brims, to carriage whips and riding crops and knife handles. A lot of different applications. So they would uh, break it down into fibers? I assume so. <laughs> one of the sources... There's a quote from one of the sources that I just had to write down because it was really funny. It says... Quote, many a whaleman lost his life in the endeavor to improve the female figure because of how often whalebone was used in corsets. Whalebone corsets are still, I think that um, either... Yeah, that's why they were out there. <laughs> that's why. Gotta get those waistlines down. <laughs> and as we mentioned a little bit earlier, spermaceti was one of the most important whale products that was being acquired at this time. Like I said, it was it was known to create a cleaner, brighter flame. Um, their blubber, apparently, also was considered a much more superior oil compared to, like, right whales. Spermaceti oil is also known to be an exceptional lubricant, which, like I said, very important for other industrial innovations. Some apparently used to believe that spermaceti could be used as, like, a panacea, a cure-all. Mm -hmm. It can't. It's well, not. You kind of had to see that coming from, you know, 19th century yeah. Western civilization. I mean, yeah. The people that were grinding up mummies, <laughs> by the way. Yep. <laughs> have, you, have you been to the Cannibal Museum in Balboa? I have. Yeah. They have, have, like, the apothecary's lab. The where... exhibition has been there forever. Yeah. <laughs> the apothecary's lab where there's, like, a book of, like, what's your ailment? Here's your prescription. And yeah, it's like mummy dust. Yeah. Kidney stones and corpse teeth. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to take a, a page from a, one of my other favorite podcasts, Sawbones, and say what they say, which is cure-alls, cure-nothing. I don't know. I've heard some good things about turmeric. Turmeric? <laughs> Me too, actually. I have a whole <laughs> thing of turmeric tea in my cabinet. Please, if you're actually sick with some kind of chronic ailment and you think that don't. you can just take garlic and turmeric and, and ginger and shit, just go see a doctor. Please, Please. just go see a doctor. Don't, don't chug spermaceti. Don't just <laughs> eat spoonfuls. But if of you turmeric. do get your hands on some spermaceti, I can. I have a PO box. Uh, <laughs> Please send it directly to me. Express all shipping. the spermaceti I can get my hands on. I, I'm a avid collector of antique lamps. <laughs> well, hopefully someone comes across a large sperm whale, because big ones could produce an oil yield of up to 80 barrels. The tongue alone can produce up to 25 barrels. Really, they were rendering down the tongue. Yeah. You wouldn't think that there'd be a whole lot of fat on the tongue. No, I wouldn't either. That was kind of interesting to me. 
unless they were just like really into tacos de lengua in <laughs> in the nineteenth century. Lengua de ballena. Uh, New England. There was one more highly valuable whale product. Uh, it was considered the rarest and the most valuable of all of the other stuff I've talked about. And this is something that we both know because we both watched Flapjack growing up. This is something called the ambergris. What it is, it's actually not very well understood. <laughs> Scientists aren't 100% certain what the purpose of it is, where it comes from. Um, it's believed to, for one, it, form, it does form in the intestines of a sperm whale. And it's believed that it forms either from illness or to assist in the passing of hard objects like squid beaks, which, like I said, their diet is made up of squid. It's like this very, it's like this big ball. It's a waxy lump. Of wax, exactly. Um, and it was very valuable. Some people said that it smells like perfume. It doesn't. It smells like garbage right out of the whale. As I would imagine anything coming out of a dead whale would smell like. But it was extremely valuable because it was used in perfumes. How do we know it didn't smell like 19th century perfume? Because there's plenty of other sources of whalemen pulling it out and being like, wow, this smells like shit. Or having that claim. Yes, but maybe that was a very vogue scent on Nantucket then, as it probably still is today. I wouldn't be surprised if whale gut was was like a popular Mm -hmm. scent out there. (laughs) There was one source I read that said... um, that just kind of drove home how important whaling was on Nantucket. Uh, it said that young women on Nantucket would form like these secret sisterhoods where they would promise to each other not to wed a man if he had not killed a whale yet. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, girls. It's pretty hardcore. He's a 10, but he <laughs> hasn't <laughs> killed a whale he's yet. He's an accountant. <laughs> and they're like, ah, two. Fuck. <laughs> Uh, but ambergris, like I said, was extremely valuable. It could sell at $300 per pound, which today is roughly about $7,000. That's, that's pretty wild. That's pretty nuts. But the largest amount obtained by a single ship was said to be by a, lo and behold, Nantucket vessel, uh, Watchman, in 1858. They captured a prize weighing about 800 pounds, which then would be, if you're doing the math right, which uh, I hope I did, $240,000, or today, $5.6 million. Was that a total haul, or did that come from one whale? Uh, I'm not sure. That's a really good question. It doesn't specify. I can't imagine having 800 pounds of stuff in your gut would be great, but like I said, sperm whales are big. Who knows? So yeah, came back to port with a giant, nasty ball of wax that they would turn into perfume. Now, now were, they, were they bringing back whale meat, too? They were, yeah. Most parts of a whale, um, it would be, like I said, blubber, meat, bone, ambergris. Meat wasn't so much of a priority as the other Boning stuff. Bone and baleen, not their, their bones. Yes. Um, so, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of the whale would go to waste, which is really sad. Well, waste... Uh to human purposes. Yeah, no. Whale falls are, are a massive part of the deep sea ecosystem. Yeah, they're so cool. I want to do an episode on whale falls. Stay tuned for the episode on whale falls. Whale falls. There's a really great um, video by, I think it's Nautilus EV, 
or they have like a video where they came mm-hmm. across a whale yeah, fall I've and they talk about actually. it. It's really cool. I, I watched a lot of those videos to put me to sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, they're cool. They're great, but not as great as this, as this podcast. So again, stay tuned for the episode on whale falls. <laughs> Thank you for the plug. Thank you for plugging my podcast. It will podcast be available uh, my wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> All right. Now we can get to the story. That oh, I've... we're getting down to the meat and potatoes <laughs> only 40 minutes in. We're getting down to the ambergris of the story. So, a little Getting overview. into the real spermaceti here now. <laughs> so, a little overview of our time, place, principal players in this event. The beginning of our story is set on Nantucket in the year 1819. The principal characters I'm going to talk about are uh, three gentlemen in particular, chief among them being a man named Owen Chase, because a lot of the events that I found, uh, or the entire timeline that I found of this incident, I got from his account. He wrote a first-hand account not long after um, it happened, because he does survive. Um, I'm going to get into him more, just because there's a lot of information about him. There's not so much about the other two. The other two being uh, the captain of this voyage, a man named George Pollard Jr., and a young cabin boy named Thomas Nickerson. Nickerson would also go on to publish his own uh, account, or write his own account, but it would not be published until long after his death in the 1980s. He died in the 1980s? No. (laughs) He died a long time before that, but it was discovered and published in the 1980s. I was going to say. That'd be pretty intense. I need to get my hands on some ambergris. <laughs> I get my hands on some spermaceti. <laughs> but yeah. Ruminations um, of a 200-year-old Wayland man. <laughs> but um, Nantucket at this time, according to Owen Chase, was home to 8,000 inhabitants, 100 whaling vessels. Um, of these 8,000 inhabitants, about 1,600 were seamen. Go Gig- on. Giggity. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> that that makes up a, about roughly 20% of the population, by the way. As for Owen Chase, uh, his a lot of the history of the men on this voyage is kind of murky. Owen Chase, there's not too much information about his early life. Um, we know that he was probably born October 7th, 1797. He was the fourth of eight children, middle child, relatable. And he was 21 at the time of the departure and 23 at the time of the accident. Now, on Nantucket, there are several prominent whaling families or whaling lineages. Um, And if you were descended from any of these lineages or you carried that name, you were considered someone worthy of esteem and respect. These would be names like Coffin, Starbuck, Husey, Joy. If any of those sound familiar, uh, Starbuck is the name of Captain Ahab's first mate. In the Pequod. So, another Nantucket connection to Moby Dick. You could 100% hear that siren. I could hear it in my headphones. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, among all those really prominent uh, family names, there were also Chase. Owen Chase, however, was not part of the Nantucket Chases. He is descended from the Yarmouth Chases, who are... No relation. Nobody's on Nantucket. No one gives a fuck about who you are if you're not from Nantucket. Uh, like I mentioned, they're very insular people. Um, being a Nantucketer or an Islander carries a lot of weight. If you were not born in Nantucket, you, if you came, if you were born in like Boston and you were brought to Nantucket, 
if you were like a day old, you still would not be considered a Nantucketer. You had to be born on the soil of that island. I think um, Thomas Nickerson, he was actually brought to Nantucket when he was only six months old, and he was never considered to be a Nantucketer by any of the other crew that he worked with, which kind of kind of sucks. Um, Chase's... The feeling goes both ways, Nantucketers. <laughs> yeah. Stay home. <laughs> uh, Chase's family, we know, uh, were not originally sailors. His father, Judah, was a farmer. And it's because of this, it's speculated that this is what really drove Owen's ambition to be a seaman. Um, all of Judah's sons would eventually become seamen and captains, and that helped to bring the family esteem. There's like, there's vague hints and references to his schooling. We know he was at least literate, religion-wise. In his account, he shows that he's a pious man. It's unknown what the first ship he sailed on was, but we do know the second or third ship. Sh- mm? Ship. <laughs> Thank you. We do know the second or third ship he sailed on was the Essex. Uh, He sailed under a Captain Daniel Russell, and his first mate was George Pollard Jr., who I mentioned earlier. Uh, This voyage took place in 1817, when Chase was about 20, and he was hired on as a boat steerer, not to be confused with a helmsman. He did not pilot the ship itself. He would be in the smaller whaling boats that would be dispatched from the ship during a whale hunt. Um, But the fact that he was a boat steerer, which some places I read could be interchangeable with harpooner. Um, It was a very skilled position, and this kind of hints at his experience at sea. So we know at least by the time he was 20, he had some experience under his belt as a whaler. Before he would ship out again on the Essex, he had actually just returned from a whaling venture in April, uh, and he would head back out to sea in August. But in the interim, he got married to a woman named Peggy Gardner, When he left, she was pregnant with their daughter, Phoebe, I think her name was. Um, Owen Chase would go on to have a really interesting marriage life, I'll say that. I think he was married about four times. One of his marriages suffered from infidelity. He ended up marrying the widow of one of the men who died on this voyage. He was messy. I kind of live for it, though. Some sources say he also married a whale. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. No, I would. After what the, what this whale put him through? Fuck. If he could overcome that, hats off to him. I won't even judge. But I'm, I'm talking about him a lot because, like I said, I'm using his account primarily of the incident. And in that account, he says, quote, It was my misfortune to be a considerable, if not a principal, sufferer in the dreadful catastrophe that befell us. And in it, I not only lost all the little I had ventured, but my situation and the prospects of bettering it, that at one time seemed to smile upon me, were all in one short moment destroyed with it. End quote. Poor guy. So for the Essex itself, she was built in 1799, which means she was about 20 years old in 1819. This is considered old for a whaling ship. Uh, And she ironically had a reputation for being lucky. (laughs) Never, if you're gonna, if you have to go on a boat, never go on one that they say is lucky or unsinkable or in any way, in any way, unfallible. <laughs> because I feel like it's just tempting fate. Or if you're into that. If you're into that, By sure. all means. If you want to have, like, an awesome disappearance, death at sea, fuck. Find the luckiest, most unsinkable ship you can find. Um, 
She had, she was a three-masted ship. She had two decks, a square stern, and a copper-plated hull, which was really common at this time. The copper plating was so that any sea growth that would occur on the bottom of the ship wouldn't affect the wood and cause any kind of erosion or damage. Uh, She had no figurehead on the bow. She was 88 feet long, 25 feet wide, and 12 and a half feet deep, which is actually small for a whaling vessel. For reference, the Star of India... Euterpe. Yeah, the Euterpe that we have both been on, so we know, is 212 feet long. 280 feet, if Uh, you... She's also not a whaling ship. No, she's not, but I'm just giving you for scale... 212 feet long, 280 if you include her bowsprit, and she is 35 feet wide at the beam, so 10 feet wider than this ship, and much longer. This comparison is also going to mean nothing to most people listening. Well, it it's a little... I don't care. <laughs> 88 feet long versus 200 feet long. But you could do yourself a favor and take yourself over to the Wikipedia page for the Star of India, and yeah. you can read something a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Better yet. It is the oldest active sailing ship in the world. Mm-hmm. She's beautiful. I love the Star of India. If you live in San Diego and you haven't been to the Maritime Museum yet, you're doing yourself a disservice. Go there. Uh, for, Essex, for Essex's... God, that's awful to say. For Essex's final departure... Uh, George Pollard replaced Daniel Russell as captain. Uh, that happened on April 5th, 1819. Pollard was 28, and he was a first-time captain, which is really unfortunate. For I him. imagine uh, most of the men in the whaling industry at this time were probably pretty young. Very am I, young. Am I correct in guessing that? Yes. The youngest aboard the ship was uh, Thomas Nickerson, who was 14 years old. Yeah, this doesn't seem like something you want to be doing once... You're Once older. you've made any kind of money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the crew itself was comprised of 21 men, 9 Nantucketers, and 12 off-islanders. 14 were white, 7 were black. I also found out in the early 1800s, 18% of American, uh, American sailors were black men, and most were free. I was just going to say that those numbers, that was an interesting uh, distribution. Mm-hmm. Probably also, I mean, you know, limited opportunities. Yeah, very true. <laughs> you don't really get to do that. That's why I thought that also it was interesting that you mentioned how, how many of these um, whalers were, were Native, mm-hmm. Native American, which fits oh. into the same vein, I imagine. You right? give the least favorable jobs to to the most marginalized people. Right. Um, th- there were, I mean, black crewmen did enjoy a greater degree of equality relatively aboard whaling ships than they would on like commercial vessels or any sure. other ship. But obviously it was just the reality at the time. White crew members would still receive preferential treatment, uh, especially Nantucketers. That would be pretty much the hierarchy. would be like Nantucketers, white crewmen, uh, black sailors, and native fishermen. Um, but still, these were whaling crews were fairly diverse crews. This is reflected in Moby Dick as well. The um, the crew of the Pequod is comprised of a lot of different men from different backgrounds. And I think Melville, it's supposed to be an allegory for um, the ship represents the world, and it's meant to be an allegory for like global cooperation. In the pursuit of killing whales. Yep. <laughs> we can't ground much, but by God. <laughs> Fuck them whales. We need to kill whales. <laughs> um, 
It's also important to note that the majority of the crew were off-islanders. This is because captains were able to pick their crews, and they had um, captains had seniority pick of their crews. Pollard, being a junior captain, had to pretty much take whoever he could get. And while Nantucket captains liked to sail with mostly Nantucket crewmates, he was left to get what they called coops, which were those from the mainland. And then there were green hands who were inexperienced fishermen or inexperienced seamen. So this whole journey was comprised of off-islanders and inexperienced inexperienced, uh, young men. And all of them, nine Nantucketers, that's not bad. The officers aboard, like I mentioned, uh, George Pollard Jr. was the captain. He was 28 at the time. Uh, Owen Chase served as his first mate. He was 21. Uh, the second mate was a man named Matthew Joy, who was 26. Um, each officer was also assigned a boat steerer, so when they would dispatch in these small whaling boats, there would be one man on the boat who was responsible for harpooning the whale with the line, basically just to get the line in place, but it was the officer aboard who would um, strike the killing blow to the whale. So their respective boat steerers, Pollard had a man named Obed Hendricks, who was 20. Uh, Chase had a man named Benjamin Lawrence, who was also 20. And Matthew Joy was assigned a man named Thomas Chapel. I don't know how old he is. Keep, keep so him in mind, though. <laughs> were, they, were they using like floats attached to harpoons or just straight to the boat? Just like, trying straight to, ta- trying to tire out the, the whale? Yep, that's exactly it. And get him to drag you... Along the water. Do you remember the um, the whaling mechanic? I've done a lot of whaling in, in my day. In Assassin's I Creed. I've played a lot, yes. That's actually not far off from the reality of and it. And I, I have the whaling outfit because I have <laughs> three white whales, by the way, which are rare spawns. <laughs> Good job. Nice. But I also have the shark hunter outfit. <laughs> so I don't discriminate. <laughs> Fuck them whales and, and fuck, them, fuck sharks. them sharks. But honestly, yeah, that that mechanic is not far off from the real thing. That's exactly how it would go. You would spear a whale with a harpoon that was affixed to a line that was pre-measured to be a certain amount of leagues. The whale would then run, uh, which meant it would dive very deep and it would go very fast. It would pull the boat along with it in something that was called a Nantucket sleigh ride, which I love. And once the whale had tired itself out, it would uh, come to the surface where the boat would be waiting. And the I'm not sure if it was only the first mate who would um, be responsible for single-handedly basically stabbing the poor thing to death at the surface of the water. So what would happen if, if the whale just dove straight down? Uh, I can't imagine these little boats would have the displacement to stop a 50,000-pound no, animal. It was up to the captains aboard to determine if... This, they cut the line. Yeah. If the hunt was not going to be down. successful. Exactly. <laughs> they'd be like, shit, us or the whale. So yeah, they would be able to decide at what point this was no good. Also aboard the crew was Pollard's young cousin, a 16-year-old kid named Owen Coffin. Um, Coffin was not supposed to be on this journey, actually. His mother did not want him going out to sea because his father died a couple years back at sea. Um, And his mother, Nancy, was very against him going on any kind of voyage. Um, But Pollard 
promised her. He said, I'll take care of him. You know, that's my, that's my little, that's my cousin. Don't worry about him. I'm going to make sure nothing happens to him. Keep that in mind, too. <laughs> anyway, all that being established, Essex was provisioned for a two-and-a-half-year journey, and with her 21 men, she disembarked Nantucket Port on August 12, 1819, and set a course for the Pacific. The Pacific was ripe whaling ground at this time, because they had pretty much decimated the Atlantic in terms of sperm whales to be hunted, and the Pacific was fairly uncharted water for New Englanders. Um, not much was known about it. Each ship that was headed that way would come with, it was like a little journal called um, the Navigator. I think that's the the truncated name is the Navigator. And it would have a list of like friendly islands in the Pacific, routes in the Pacific. The one that was aboard Essex was about 10 years outdated which sucks because they really relied on this after shit goes down. So if, if they were sailing all the way around the tip of South America anyway, mm-hmm. were they also hunting in, uh, in the Southern Ocean? I'm not, sh- I'm not sure, actually. Or did they just bypass it? I think they just went straight past it because uh, apparently rounding the horn was also a pretty treacherous journey yeah. in itself. It's pretty rough water down there yeah. from the sound of Especially it. Especially in a little 80-foot <laughs> wooden 20-year-old wooden boat. Yeah. Uh, This journey gets off to a great start on August 14th when a storm almost knocks the Essex completely over. (laughs) She sustained... Yeah. (laughs) She ran into a crazy storm and pretty much almost just sank immediately into the voyage. She sustained major damage and lost two of her five whaling boats. Pollard still continued on the course despite the damage um, and especially what the men considered to be a bad omen. Uh, sailors, as you know, are a pretty superstitious lot, so a storm two days out of port, I would be kind of uncertain at that point to... to oh, manage. I like the odds. I d- Get it out of the way. I don't. What are, they, are there going to be two storms? Come on. <laughs> Storms never strike the same no. place twice. Um, a little over two weeks later, on August 30th, they uh, reached the Azores, which are off the coast of Portugal, specifically the island of Flores. We have an island. And there they uh, stocked up on provisions and then left. Next. Did you say they were off the coast of Portugal? Mm-hmm. I so thought that they, they were going to the Pacific. They were. So that also confused me, because I was like, the Azores. They're going the, the wrong way. How are they way. doing? <laughs> Boys, you're, you missed a turn. Um, heading to, heading across the Pacific and stocking up at the islands off the coast of Portugal and Spain was a pretty... Across the Atlantic. Yes. Was a pretty common thing to do, actually. Um, like I said, Essex was Mm. outfitted, uh, was provisioned for about two and a half years, which is roughly how long these voyages would last. Two to three years. Yeah. Awesome. Two to three years on an 88 foot ship. With With the same 20 guys. 20 guys who are all frat boy age. And they're all from Nantucket. <laughs> uh, by September 15th, they were sailing along the island of, uh, along the coast of the island of Mayo in Cape Verde, which is off the coast of Africa. Uh, and they came across a ship that had seemingly run aground. This was a whaling vessel called Archimedes that was based out of New York. It was an ambush set by the whales. It, <laughs> they caught one. Another <laughs> omen. <laughs> That's no, that's no shipwreck. <laughs> um, and from the boat, this was weird. So they purchased one of her whaling boats from some men there, 
The men they bought it from were not the crew of this ship. Oh, they were pirates. I don't... They said the, the crew was already gone. They were working for the whales. Oh, my God. They gave them a faulty whale boat. <laughs> uh, they might have, actually, because some, some something kind of funny happens twice. Um, don't one of these whale boats. Uh, but, yeah, they purchased a whale boat from these strange guys at the wreck and then said thanks, see ya, and left. Uh, December 18th, the same year, 1819, they reached Cape Horn, and from what I understand, it seems like it took about five weeks to round it because of the uh, really strong westerly winds and rough mm-hmm. seas, and Owen knows that that was not uncommon for this area. By January 17th of 1820, Happy New Year, uh, Essex reached the island of Santa Maria off the coast of Chile. This was kind of a rendezvous point for Pacific whalers. Between now and October 2nd, they had actually had a fairly successful uh, whaling run. They had accumulated up to 800 barrels of oil at this point along the coast of Chile and Peru. On August 2nd, they did end up stopping at the Galapagos for a little bit. They anchored at several of the islands to make repairs and to... This this is kind of crazy. So we know... (laughs) One of the things the Galapagos is famous for are their giant... Finches. Sure. (laughs) Also, their giant tortoises. They would collect these tortoises for food. Because according to Owen, you didn't have to feed them that often. And they occupied not that much space on a ship. And one could feed a lot of men. Um, They ended up... They ended up collecting about 600 fucking tortoises from these <laughs> islands. And bad news, a lot of them were still on the wreck when it sank, which oh, makes no. me really sad. Yeah. For those of you not in the know, the difference between a tortoise and a turtle, Is tortoise political don't views. swim. Oh, yeah, that too. Also that. <laughs> uh, tortoises tortoises are, are famously leftist. <laughs> on October 23rd, uh, they did end up departing what they call Charles Island. I believe today it's known as Floriana Island. And they left because the guy who I said to remember, named Thomas Chapel, he thought it would be funny to start a fire <laughs> as a prank. On a boat. Pranked you guys, not on the boat, on the island. Uh, what he couldn't have known is that this was kind of an unprecedented dry season on the island. And the fire ended up engulfing pretty much the entire island and is actually believed today to be responsible for the extinction of the Floriana tortoise and the Floriana mockingbird. Good one. Good one, Tom. Gotcha, guys. Funny prank. (laughs) Funny fucking prank. (laughs) Should have seen your faces. (laughs) I was only pretending to set the island on fire. (laughs) You guys fell for it. Idiots. Uh... Needless to say, Captain Pollard was very upset with him. Well, what did he do with him? As far as I know, it seems like he just kind of dressed him down and like... Ah. He took his clothes off? No, it's it's a, it's a it's a term for like reprimanding. You messed so up now, much. boy. Get naked. Get naked. <laughs> if you've watched The Terror... That's he got chewed out, is what you're telling Pretty me. Pretty much, yeah. Well, then he wasn't that upset with him. No. Um, Should have made him 
walk the plank Straight or something. Up. Uh, it's also, I, sh- I forgot to mention, at some point while they were uh, on one of these islands, I can't remember which one, I believe it starts with a T, uh, one of their crew did desert. So they're down to 20 men now at this the point. Well, did he swim home? What do you mean? <laughs> they stopped at a port and he just oh. ditched. He's like, fuck this. I don't want to whale anymore. And left. Um, so they leave the island and they begin sailing westward in search of whales. Where they were headed was a, it was basically this big, roughly rectangular patch of open ocean that was referred to as the offshore grounds. And it was discovered by Nantucket ships only a couple years prior. They had found that a lot, this area was very plentiful in sperm whales. And uh, news of this offshore ground became very well circulated among whalers. The only thing is that it was about 1,500 miles off the coast of South America, which is very far. Uh, And the further out you are, the more dangerous things become. The more precarious your situation would be if something happened to your boat. And uh, something happens to their boat. So this is also just funny to mention. On November 16th, during a hunt, Owen's boat was uh, stoven by a whale that thrashed its tail and knocked a hole in it. In his account, he says that it's not an uncommon occurrence, which to me, it's just kind of, it sounds like, it, it happens all the time, guys, I swear. <laughs> it happens to everybody, not just me, because it fucking happens again on November 20th during another hunt. Um, and this hunt in particular is pretty important. So November 20th, 1820... The Essex is estimated to be at a latitude of 40 minutes south and a longitude of 119 degrees west, which is squarely within the offshore grounds. The morning's clear. It's beautiful. It's great whaling weather. And at 8 a.m., one of the lookouts spots a pot of whales and, I shit you not, shouts, there she blows. That's a real thing they would say. Owen Chase says it in his book, and I believe him. Although, there's a lot of stuff in his book I don't believe, but kind of an aggrandizing account. It's it's meant to be kind of taken with a grain of salt. Anyway, so they spot the whales, they close distance with the ship to be within a half mile of them, and then the three whaleboats are dispatched, led by the officers, Pollard, Chase, and Joy. Like I mentioned, Chase's boat, again, gets owned by a whale, and he... Um, He's forced to cut the line, because they do already have the, uh, the line in the whale. So he has to cut it, head back to the Essex, and he's trying to... He's like, I can repair the ship, the boat fast enough to get back out there and get some whale. So he's on the boat with the rest of his little whaling crew, and he looks over, and he sees something. He notices a sperm whale... That's just kind of sitting and facing the ship a little ways off. According to him... Menacingly. He's just standing there. (laughs) Menacingly. Literally. Uh, Chase estimated this whale to be about 85 feet long. You know, just eyeballed it. He's a whaler. I kind of believe him. (laughs) That's the only estimate we have how long this whale is. So, who knows? I mean, you're never going to tell the story about how you got owned by some puny little 40-foot yeah, whale. Yeah, that's true. You're going to make it sound like the biggest <laughs> whale was, ever. He was a monster. Yeah. So, he sees this massive whale just kind of sitting and facing the ship. And he's like, huh, weird. And then just kind of keeps working on on the boat. 
he notices suddenly. <laughs> I'm just imagining this whale hyping himself up. <laughs> Come on, just do it. Just yeah. Go, get in there. So the whale sitting there suddenly disappears and then reappears. This time it is charging towards the bow at a breakneck speed of three knots. Um, should also note that the, the Essex is also moving. This is at Chase's order so that he can mm-hmm. close the distance with the other two boats. So three knots plus three knots. Physics, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Chase notices the whale closing in, and he tries to give the order to uh, hard up and fear, fear away from the whale before he's even able to get the words out. I'm sure, sperm whale could swim a lot faster than three knots, right? I think it could because... Um, there was another it's source. Like trawling speed. Yeah, there was another source I read that says twenty-four knots was the speed it reached. I don't know how they would know that, but I couldn't find a max speed that they could travel at. But yeah, I assume faster than three knots. So Chase gives the order to veer to avoid the whale. It's too late. The whale strikes the bow with its head, and this just rocks the ship violently. It almost throws everyone on board onto their faces. The whale then passes beneath the ship and comes up again alongside it and just kind of lingers there. Chase says he thinks that it was probably stunned. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Smacking your head against. I mean, the guy had had 1,200 pounds of tortoise aboard. (laughs) Um, It kind of just hung around there on the side and then took off and disappeared again. Uh, Chase realized that the damage was pretty significant. This whale has stove a hole in the ship, which just means he's, like, crushed in the bow. Torpedoed it. Yeah. So he orders... they lost any tortoise in the collision. I don't know. They certainly lose a lot in what happens next. But, yeah. So he sees that uh, there's a massive hole in the bow. He orders the pumps to start going to get as much water out, but he kind of knows that it's, it's not looking good. Uh, and he starts pre- preparing the other whaling boats on board and provisioning them because he knows that this the Essex is going down and she's going down fast. Um, as he's preparing these other boats, he notices again, looks up, and sees the whale again, just sitting there at a distance. Menacingly. Menacingly. Uh, this time it's not just sitting there. It's actually like wildly <laughs> convulsing and thrashing oh, and snapping its jaws and then it takes off again. And he's like, weird. That sounds a little bit exaggerated. Yeah, I think so. Because I was like, what kind of behavior would <laughs> and that be? And the whale be? was pawing at the dust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and steam was coming out of its bowl. <laughs> I could, I honestly, I don't know why, why any of that would happen. Uh, Maybe it could be some kind of, you know, it did just ram a ship with its brain. So I don't know, but he sees it. I think they would have a lot of protection from their little melon. You'd think, you know, uh, Chase mentions that actually. He says that he's surprised this doesn't happen, that this isn't their. Sea rams. <laughs> he, they are their shaped like a fucking battering ram. But he's, he mentions that it's, um, they're perfectly shaped for this kind of attack, even right. though they don't attack like this. Um, because, like I said, they got that big square head. Their eyes are set pretty far back on their head, right. so they're protected. I also and found out... Their brain out, is further back. In, yeah, in their, their brain's really far back. Um, like you said, they got the melon right there. But they don't want to hit that, that melon because it's probably... A, pretty sensitive organ probably like, yeah you know, running into a wall with your, your your nose yeah ouch if your nose was as big as your forehead yeah 
but um, they're they're pretty well shaped to be battering rams. They just don't do it. I also found out that um, sperm whale skin is 14 inches thick. And that tracks because that tracks. Uh, well, when you when they find sperm whales, oftentimes they have massive scars on them because yeah. um, they're prey of choice. They're fighting with squids. Colossal squid uh, have like hooks on their their suction cups. Yeah. And, and I remember, razor sharp beaks. I remember seeing all of the like footage of sperm whales with the big mm-hmm. suction cup scars on their faces. Yeah, and they'll, you'll see um, sperm whales that have scars that look like like chain links mm-hmm. across their body. God, that's so metal. Two giant animals engaged in mortal combat at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, except one has no idea what's even going on. <laughs> One's like, I don't Squid even know are so you. so fucking dumb. <laughs> so yeah. Squid are so dumb. He sees the whale doing its crazy shit. He's like, whoa, what is that? And then it takes <laughs> off again. It leaves again. He's like, huh, weird. And again, the Essex is sinking very fast. And at this point, Chase just considers her lost. And he starts working to get the boats clear of the ship. Uh, A crewman spots the whale coming back around. Chase is like, oh, fuck. Didn't you say they're like 1,500 kilometers offshore at this point? Yeah. They are. So even if they get to the boats. That's a long distance. No charge. Yeah. (laughs) Open ocean. Yep. Uh, So yeah. Crewman spots the whale, says it's coming about again. Chase sees it, goes, fuck me, um, verbatim. He says that in the source. <laughs> he doesn't. Um, but it is bearing down on them now at a blistering speed of six knots, <laughs> according to Chase. I think probably it must have been faster to punch a hole in the side of this boat. Um, but again, it was an old boat. Oh, it's a so heavy maybe animal. That's, yeah, that's a big animal, 85 feet long, apparently. Again, Chase tries to maneuver away because he knows a second blow, there's no, whatever chance the Essex might have had of surviving this, a second blow would completely destroy that. And unfortunately, it does land and it completely stoves in her bows. Uh, the whale disappears under the boat once more and it's gone for good. They never see him again. Um, ship's going down. Chase orders the men to collect as many provisions as they can fit into the boats. One of the stewards manages to recover two quadrants, two practical navigators, and two compasses, along with two trunks that belong to Chase and Pollard that have some supplies in them. Uh, The Essex is actually beginning to go down by the side, so she's like settled on her side halfway in the water, and she is in this state by the time Pollard and Joy return to the boat. Because remember, they were out there hunting whales. (laughs) So they come back, and they're like, fuck, I was gone for ten minutes. What did you do? But uh, they come back. Chase says that Pollard sees Essex, and he just kind of, like, sits down on the boat for a second and just stares at her, stunned, probably really upset. Again, he's a first-time captain. This is a hell of a way to have your uh, your virgin captaincy begin. So he's sitting there, very clearly addled by what's going on. He looks at Chase and he says, My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? And Chase replies, We have been stove by a whale. So the aftermath of this initial incident, immediately the crew begins to cut away the mast of the Essex so that she can kind of return to an even keel position. 
This will allow them to get onto the decks and scuttle the deck to get supplies. Scuttle means to just put holes in it to get to the lower decks, basically. Um, they're able to salvage 600 pounds of hardtack, about 195 gallons of water, which they divide into 65 gallons per boat, uh, a musket, a small container of powder, files, two rasps, which are like construction equipment. How many pounds of tortoise? Uh, they only recover, I believe, six tortoises out of the 600 they collected. Um, it was two for each boat. They also managed to recover two pounds of boat nails. Can you, can you imagine like being on a, on a whaling vessel and, and you're, you know, you're out there hunting for whales, right? <laughs> and you're, you're plodding along and out of the morning mist comes a little boat and it's being rowed along by like six men. And you're like, like what the hell happened here? And survivors. And you look down and, and you're, you're about to, you know, help them up onto your vessel and you see that. Not only are there six men in this boat, but there are two <laughs> giant Galapagos tortoises. I like would. You probably think that you were going stark fucking mad. I would, yeah. <laughs> I would have some kind of ocean brain rot that was setting in. Immediately eat some fucking lemons or something. <laughs> Scurvy's in my brain, uh, yeah. Captain. Uh, the next day, for the next couple of days, they kind of just hang around the wreck because they're too. They're like. Fuck, what do we do? We're in the middle of the goddamn Pacific. What do we do? Yeah. Um, to ensure their safety at night, they do tie the boats together and then tie the boats to the ship. All like otters. Yeah. Cute. Um, the next day, the sea is not kind to them. They're assaulted by strong winds. So the Essex hasn't gone down. Is it on a shoal no, or something? She's just, I'm not sure actually. Um, why she stays up for so long because by the next day she's still there and by the time they leave she's still floating so hmm. i don't know um but the next day they just begin to strip the ship of parts and they're able to furnish from these parts they're able to furnish each boat with two masts that support two spurt sails and a flying jib which if you know sailing that will mean something to you they don't mean a lot to me Basically, they have effective sails to navigate. They also build up the sides of the boats uh, an additional six inches above the gunwale, which is the side of the boat. Because I looked at pictures of these whaling boats, of what a 19th century whaling boat would look like. They are very, they're very low dipped on mm. the side. Um, they're also not very sturdy boats. Which makes sense because they're meant to be light and fast to keep up with whales. They're not supposed to be like very hardy, which is just one more thing on top of all this. They're in really shitty boats. The men of the crew are divided into the ships, seven, or the ships are divided into the boats so that each boat has seven men. Chase's boat only has six because his is in the worst condition. On November 22nd, Chase determines that they had crossed the equator and drifted 19 miles during the night. Uh, the crew is still searching the wreck, but the decks are beginning to give way. Chase, Pollard, and Joy all convene in a captain's meeting and are like, all right, what's, what's the move? What are we going to do? Their plan, they decide, is to sail not straight east for the coast, but to sail south and try to catch the variable winds and then sail east for the Chilean or Peruvian coast. Sailing straight east wouldn't be a great idea because wind and tide would both be against them in that direction. It'll carry you out to sea really far, but going in, not so much. 
which means this is going to almost more than double their journey back. What would be 1,500 miles, which is already a pretty crazy feat in teeny tiny little whaleboats, is now an over 4,000 mile long journey that they have to they have to undertake in tiny boats with 65 gallons of water in each boat and only so many pounds of bread. And two tortoises. And two tortoises. Um, the navigational equipment is left in Pollard and Chase's boat. Um, so the third boat doesn't have much. They're just supposed to kind of follow the, uh, follow the other two. They all tie, I think that they don't keep the boats tied together. They do end up just kind of, uh, free balling it basically sailing and, um, trying to keep themselves together, which does not go so well as we'll find out. Um, here's the thing. There was land that was much closer nearby. These would have been the uh, Marquesas and the Society Islands further into the Pacific. Um, I think that they were like a little over a thousand, two thousand miles further west. However, I think there was also some more land between the two. But again, the Pacific was not well charted by New Englanders at this point, And they were using a very outdated guide. And these two islands, wouldn't you know it... They were scared to go there because they had heard tales of cannibals inhabiting these islands, which is going to become ironic later. So opting not to go for what is uh, closer because they don't believe it's safer, they begin charting a course heading south southeast. The crew were pretty resolved to keep the boats together, kind of uh, both for assistance, practical, practical purposes, and also for morale, keep the homies together. Uh, there were two watches that were kept in each boat throughout the night, with one of them uh, constantly bailing water because these boats were constantly taking on water. Chase estimated that they would hit the variable winds in 26 days, and they would reach the coast in another 30, which is a very generous estimate. Um, that doesn't happen. I'll tell you. I'll tell you that right now. So their hope was to either reach the coast within that time, or be picked up by a ship before then which is what they were really hoping for. Again, this was not, the offshore grounds were not a super traversed area because they were so far out. This was not a common, uh, these were not common whaling lanes, basically. November 28th, 1820, eight days out from the incident, the uh, wind is still against them. So basically the whole time from when they left the wreck to them now heading out, uh, the wind and the weather have been really pretty shitty really bad at one point pollard calls out for help because his boat is being attacked by <laughs> something uh they don't know what it is they're not able to tell what it is chase estimates that it's about 12 feet long and he says that it's one of the killer fish species i don't know what that means shark uh, yeah that's what i'm like shark killer whale I don't know. Um, but yeah, the boat gets attacked. They're able to fend it. Some uh, big fucking grouper. Yeah, that terrifies me. <laughs> so uh, the crew is able to fend off the fucking thing with a pole, uh, but the boat has sustained damage. So Pollard moves his provisions into the other boats while they are uh, trying to repair his. The thing is, uh, at an earlier point, water did splash over the gunwale and soaked the provisions in, I believe, Chase's boat. Um, so some of their bread was soaked through, which is bad because seawater. That's going to make hardtack especially salty, and that's going to make you even thirstier. And remember, they have very limited water. Even worse, they had to eat 
these provisions that were uh, soaked with water first because otherwise they would spoil faster. Mm-hmm. And I know what you're thinking, Anthony. Well, did the tortoises get wet? No. <laughs> They're surrounded by water. Why don't they just drink that? Oh, true. <laughs> well, what happens is ocean water is super salty, apparently. I found out. Because all the fish pee in it. <laughs> yeah, right? that's why. Yeah. Sure. Um, ocean water contains a lot of salt. It's salt water. And it's actually super saturated with salt. Mm-hmm. So when you drink salt water, uh, your kidneys cannot filter it. The uh, salt concentration in your blood increases, and you have to drink even more water to dilute the salt so that your kidney, your kidneys... <laughs> your kidneys? Your kidneys. So that your kidneys can effectively filter it out. Yeah, so, you will actually start hallucinating. Yep. It's a pretty awful way to die. Yeah. So, uh... Salt water, drinking salt water is out of the question. Uh, now I have bad news about November 30th. Chase's crew kills one of their tortoises. Well, yeah, I didn't think that they had them there for company. <laughs> you seem so attached to them. So they kill one of their wouldn't two... You, wouldn't you be interested in the story of 600 kidnapped tortoises? <laughs> I am. I was. This feels like it was all some very, uh, like a very cosmic event of Mother Nature inflicting karma on them for... They were cursed tortoises. (laughs) Burning her fucking island and stealing her tortoises. So they kill one of the two tortoises, they eat the meat, and they drink the blood, which does help to slake their thirst somewhat. Yeah. That's hardcore. It's gonna get worse. So they're eating these things raw, too, right? Yep. They have no means to cook it, so they're just... Getting up in there. Can't get like Jardia from tortoises. Uh, probably. Um, December thirtieth, they do finish off the last of their uh, sea seawater sodden provisions. And at ten p.m. this night, Chase ends up losing sight of one of the boats. He oh, loses no. sight. Yeah, the of one without second. all the maps and stuff, right? They all. So his boat and Pollard's boat both have navigational equipment. Joy's boat, which is the one that yeah does not have anything in it. it's nowhere to be seen. They're luckily able to quickly figure out where they are by uh, shining a lantern, and they respond with a lantern. Uh, This happens several times where they lose sight of each other in the night, and they have to signal to each other, sail back over to each other, and this slows them down considerably, as you can imagine. So they begin pondering if it would be more practical to actually just split up the boats on different courses. That way, it won't strain resources of one mm-hmm. boat if another one sinks and the survivors are taken in. But they decide that it's better to remain together. Chase calls it a desperate instinct that bound us together. Which, yeah, I mean, you're all trauma-bonded now. They're about to be even further trauma-bonded. Uh, December 8th, they are struck by another storm. The crew tries collecting rainwater in the sails, but the water is just as salty as the seawater because... The, the sails are probably getting splashed. With yep. Salt so water. the sails are just crusted, dry aged, and salt. So that's no good. Uh, the storm also, even though the boats stay together through this storm, they're completely knocked off course. Uh, the next night, the storm has not let up. Uh, Chase loses sight of Pollard's boat that night. And based on an earlier resolution they made, they decided that if they again lose sight of another boat, They'll just keep going, and they'll look for each other in the morning, so they don't have to do the lantern shit anymore. 
And thankfully, yeah, the next morning he is able to spot Pollard's boat. They reunite. They keep going. The next day, hunger and thirst are really setting in. Uh, Chase has begun to guard the provisions with a pistol. Um, he says that the men stayed perfectly disciplined, though, which is pretty yeah. remarkable. Oh, wouldn't you be if you had a gun pointed at your head? You. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hard to get uppity when somebody's pointing a fucking gun <laughs> in your face. Yeah. You. yeah. He's only got one shot. He can't take us all. Yeah. <laughs> your friends may get you in a rush, but not before I turn your head into a canoe. <laughs> It's also this day they get a little bit of deliverance because a school of flying fish passes the boats. Um, some of them drop Auspicious. into the boats, right? Some do end up uh, falling into the boats, and they are set upon very quickly. They're eaten alive. By the tortoises? Yes, by the tortoise. <laughs> by the single tortoise, which next day they kill him for his no. his transgressions of eating their fish. Tortoise. So they killed their last tortoise on December 11th. Uh, December 14th to the 16th, it seems like they've hit some kind of doldrums because they're not making any progress at all. The 14th, they have their rations. Um, and at this point, thirst is, dehydration is really setting in and they're trying to uh, offset the effects by drinking urine and holding seawater in their mouths, which will do nothing for you. Yeah. It's also... Just psychological. Yeah, exactly. It's liquid. Put it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also really, really hot. They are in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, near the, the equator. sun's bearing down. Yeah, near the equator. Equatorial temperatures uh, in the open ocean can reach upper 80s, 90s. So, um, you also have no shelter from the sun. Yeah, none at all. So they end up kind of just like hanging over the side of the boat to kind of uh, get away from some of the the sun to stay in the water and cool off. And while they're there, they discover some clams that are starting to hang out underneath the boat. And so they tear them off, eat them. Another another win for the crew. Except for the one guy that was allergic to shellfish. Oh, fuck. Uh, They tried to save some for provisions, but... (laughs) They gave in to hunger and just ended up eating those two. On the 16th, Chase deduced that the storm had set them off their course by 10 miles. They attempted to row, actually, back on course, but they were so weak at that point, they just couldn't. Mm, Probably a worse idea. Yeah, yeah. Than to just sit there and do nothing. Exactly, you'll fatigue yourself faster. Yep. Yep. December 20th, uh, 7 a.m., they're chilling in their boats. Well, not chilling. They're kind of cooking in their boats, actually. Uh, 7 a.m., something happens. Something good. They spot land. The ordeal is not over, however, because it is not mainland. It is, uh, one of the Pitcairn Islands. Chase erroneously identifies it as Ducey Island. It's actually Henderson Island. Keep that in mind because that little, uh, that little faux pas becomes important later. Despite fears of any indigenous peoples there, Hunger and thirst and just general fatigue kind of overpower that fear. And Chase and three men scout ahead in search of water and food on this island. They don't find much, unfortunately, but the other boats do land. And they are able to catch some uh, crabs and small fish that they find. The next day is spent collecting uh, birds, eggs. They says that there's like a peppergrass-like plant that they're able to chew on. 
Chase and Pollard are kind of concerned about losing time on the island, though, because sure, they can stay here and eat and set off some of their hunger, but they still haven't found water here yet, Mm. and they only have so many provisions and so much time. You don't want to spend any longer out here than you have to. So they decide if water can't be found by tomorrow, they'll get back in the boats and continue on their course. And luckily, the next day, they do find water. They find uh, a small spring that is only revealed at low tide. So they collect as much water as they can. Chase says that he actually goes over there and there's like men swimming in it, just gulping it. What? Who? (laughs) Some of the crew. Oh. Yeah. There's no one else on this island but the crew. Uh, They fill two kegs with water and then they spend the rest of the day hunting fish, birds, crabs. And they're kind of like, this place kind of rocks. Maybe we should stay here for a little bit longer. So they're thinking thinking about uh, an extended stay here. Um, hoping that maybe their luck of getting noticed by a passing vessel will be better on this island. At the very least, they can repair and provision the boats if a longer journey to the mainland is necessary, which it is. However, within the next couple of days, they quickly deplete the island of uh, animals. (laughs) They hunt everything. More crabs. More crabs, more birds. So they've hunted everything by Christmas, December 25th. And there's no more food left to be found. And they kind of decide, we're just wasting time here now. New plan. They're deciding to head for Easter Island, which is about 850 miles closer from the coast uh, than the coast from their position now. So they stock up more water. The next day they spend preparing for departure. There are three men among them who actually elect to take their chances on the island rather than in the boats. Fucking and Chads. I can't blame them. These men are William Wright and Seth Weeks, both from Barnstable, Massachusetts, and fucking Thomas Chapel. I would not want to be stuck on an island with him. Why? He's the one that set the last one on fire. Oh, oh that, he won't do it twice, obviously. <laughs> Pranks don't strike the same place twice. Just learned his lesson. I wonder if they let them keep any tortoises. <laughs> they didn't. They left Ooh. them some supplies, but uh, not so much. Um, so yeah, they're like, we're staying. Were the tortoises eating this whole time? I don't. Nothing, I guess. Heart attack. Heart, I think they are starving them, to be honest. Um, you don't want stringy tortoise. Oh God, I don't want any tortoise. Uh, so they are all like, yeah, no, we're we're staying. I'm not getting back in that fucking boat. Chase, however, promises to send a boat for them if the rest of the crew finds rescue, however much of a long shot that might be. Uh, Pollard does end up leaving a message regarding the fate of the Essex on the island if a ship does end up finding it and they're not found. And To whom it may concern. Yeah. We sunk. We, We sunk. It was a big whale. We promise it wasn't a small one. It was the biggest whale. It was the biggest So December 27th, uh, Chase also takes it upon himself to collect some stones and wood to make a fire in the boat so that they can actually cook stuff. He says goodbye to the three crewmen, and in his account, he says that he never saw them again. Um, However, his account was published before he heard word of their eventual rescue. So these three men do make it off the island. Good job, boys. Good job, boys. That night, they um, they all depart in the boats. They catch a good wind. They cook their dinner, and they're in pretty high spirits. Short-lived, because January 4th, 1821, Happy New Year, 
they discovered that they have overshot Easter Island by quite a fair bit. <laughs> They're quite a ways south of it, and with the wind against them, they have no chance of reaching it anymore. So they're like, fuck. Clowns. Great. January 10th, second mate Matthew Joy. Uh, at this point, he's actually been hanging out in the captain's boat because he's been particularly weak and ill this whole time. So they brought him into the captain's boat to kind of make him more comfortable and provide for him a little bit better. Chase says that he's always uh, kind of a sickly man. He was already complaining about feeling ill before the incident even. So on this day, January 10th, he asked to be moved back into his own boat. And around 4 p.m., he dies. R.I.P. So the next morning, they sew him up in his clothes. They tie a stone around his feet. The crew gathers, and they commit him to the sea with... Wait, are you kidding me? Nope, he dies. No, I mean, like, oh. they just tossed the, the carcass? Yep. They're not at that point yet. Where? It's coming. Don't worry. Dude. Look, these are... <laughs> they're civilized men. They're not just gonna jump on him. They jump kill his bones whales to- <laughs> for a living. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, they, have, they give him a little burial at sea. Uh, and Obed Hendricks, his, uh, not his. <laughs> Fucking tortoise outlived him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Obed Hendricks was Pollard's boat steer. He ends up taking command of that boat. So from now on, I'm going to call it Hendricks' boat. January t- uh, 12th, Chase again loses sight of the two boats that night and just continues on course. And he... It's the same as they done before. He's just like, all right, sun comes up. I'll spot them in the daylight. Sun comes up the next morning. They're nowhere to be found. So now Chase and his men are completely alone in their boats. At this point, I'm going to split the narrative between those two boats and Chase's boats. Uh, In the account, they're written separately, but I didn't want to put all of the events that happened to Chase first and then summarize theirs. So I'm just going to group them together into one timeline. Uh, By January 14th, Chase estimates that they've traveled about 900 miles by now. The men are severely weakened, and despite this, they have to consider having their rations again to make them last longer until making land, unless they're picked up by a vessel, which again, the chances of that are mm, pretty slim. Yeah. During the night... I also love that we keep referring back to Chase's... um his estimations uh, on, yeah. on navigation when he has such a lackluster track record. Yeah. yeah. I'm just... Incorrective. I mean, this guy is just shooting from the hip. He's just, I don't know, 900 miles? foot whales. I, <laughs> you know, more or less 900 miles, give or take a yeah. three or 400. His account, even though it's the most comprehensive of the incident... He's uh, still from Nantucket. <laughs> It's still not considered, like, a, a complete account. There's some things that he omits, for sure. Uh, during the what night... What really happened with the tortoises? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to know. During the night, one of the crew does a no-no, and they steal from the provisions chest. Uh-oh. Another one of the crew wakes Chase up, and he's like, he he snitches. rats him out. He sure does. Chase pulls the gun on him. Demands that he returns what he steals, <laughs> and of course he does. Go ahead, spit it up. Yeah. Um, That's it, right in my hands. Yeah. And he threatens to shoot him again if he catches him again. 
It is also by this day, January 14th. You don't threaten him anymore. You just blast him next time. Straight up. That's straight You've already threatened him. Uh, it's also by this day in Hendrick's boat, January 14th. The pr- provisions in that boat are completely exhausted. So now they're relying entirely on the provisions in Pollard's boat. And they're out of tortoise. They're out of tortoise. January 15th, um, a fucking shark attacks Chase's boat. <laughs> Get out of town. Yeah, a shark attacks them. The crew try to harpoon it, uh, but they're too weak. <laughs> Meat! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do. <laughs> what kind of shark? I don't know. He doesn't, he doesn't give a... A fucking dogfish? He, do- <laughs> he doesn't give a, uh, a super accurate estimate of the, uh... Of the, the look or the size oh, of this thing. Get out thing. of town. These guys? <laughs> it was a 100-foot so shark. point. Yeah. 40,000 pounds of angry fish. <laughs> he had 14 rows of teeth. It had clams for eyes. <laughs> um, thankfully, the shark kind of just gives up and leaves. A few days later, they end up spotting a pod of whales. And it <laughs> scares the shit out of them. <laughs> One of them actually, like, urges Chase. He's like... Grab the oars. Let's get the fuck out of here. But they're too weak to get away Whales from Whales never them. forget. I know. So it's just, it's kind of, it's so like, what's the word? Provincial? Cosmic? I don't know. Provincial? That. I don't know what the word is. It's, it's not provincial. No. But uh, it's just, you know, almost like they're getting mocked by these whales. Because the whales don't do anything to them. They just swim by. They hang around what for like that? an hour. What is that sound? What sound? What's playing? I think someone's on the phone outside. Uh, Jesus Christ, that scared me. It's just like a whispering. Some fucking whale. Uh, January 20th, one of the crew, Richard Peterson, is in an extremely weakened and debilitated state. And he has been for the last three days. Uh, in the late afternoon, he refuses his rations. It's on Chase's boat? Yeah. And around 4 p.m., he does end up passing. His death seemed to have uh, kind of rattled Chase a little bit more because he spent a little more time talking about it in his account. He mm. uh, He's especially bothered by the fact that he says, you know, I was just talking to him. I just had like a really great conversation with him only a few days ago. We talked about uh, religion and life. And um, that same night, he told Chase to tell his wife uh, about his fate. If mm. Chase makes it, and he didn't, which unfortunately he didn't. I don't know if Chase did end up breaking the news to her, but Richard Peterson, he dies, and he's committed to the sea the next morning at a latitude of 35 degrees and seven and minutes south. another 90 pounds of meat. <laughs> yeah, 90 pounds. Yeah, I can't imagine being stuck in that situation, and all you're talking about is, like, really heavy shit. Like, dude, Jeez, yeah. tell, me a, tell me a joke, man. <laughs> Lighten the mood. Yeah. Tell me the one about the professor of logic. Again. <laughs> uh, I should also mention, Richard Peterson was a black man. The next couple of men that I'm gonna that I'm gonna uh, mention who do end up dying are all black men. And I said earlier, if they don't need any of them. That's some racist. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> I said earlier that um, white crew members would would uh, experience preferential treatment on on ships. It's not 
it's not unlikely to think that what happened is they were getting fewer rations than their white crew members, and that's probably why they died first, unfortunately. So January 23rd, the day we've all been waiting for, uh, another crew member, Charles Shorter, who's in the second mate's boat, he dies. Very sad. And uh, his flesh is shared among the other two boats. There you go. They eat his ass. Literally. You gotta do what you gotta do, man. They, uh, yeah. So Charles Shorter is consumed by the men in uh, Pollard and Hendrick's boat. So I've watched a lot of Survivor Men. Yeah. And uh, he, one of his big points is like, you don't, don't want to eat, eat protein if you don't have water. Well, I feel like that, yeah. Because won't you like swell your, up your and... Your body needs water to metabolize the protein. Mm, that makes sense. I see. And if this guy was already dehydrated as a son of a bitch already, yeah, you're not gonna get a whole lot out of him. Yeah, um, they did. Kind of a grim little fun fact, it but is, it, it, yeah. it did spring to mind. Yeah. Thank you, Les Stroud. Thanks, Les Stroud. You rock. Come on the podcast someday. Oh, uh, you can find it wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> the next day, January twenty fourth, uh, the crew in Chase's boat is surviving on an ounce and a half of bread a day. Boils are beginning to appear on their bodies. Except from getting beat by the um, sun. Probably. Or malnutrition. I would, yeah, probably malnutrition. That sounds like... Um, they're also incredibly fatigued and an ounce weak. and a half of bread is not going to do you anything. No, it's, it's there's just not much... It's as good as not eating at all. Yeah, so uh, they haven't had much nutrition. I have to imagine a lot of these symptoms are from vitamin deficiencies, mm. nutrient deficiency in general. Lack of tortoise. Yeah, lack of tortoise. If only they save one more mm. tortoise. Um... You'd the be routine shocked the kind of moral support a good tortoise can provide. Honestly, in in times of strife, just one. I could use a tortoise right now. Uh. <laughs> um, at this point, the most routine responsibilities of maintaining and sailing the boats are incredibly fatiguing and require immense effort. Chase even tries to eat a piece of cowhide from one of the oars, but finds it inedible, and it actually just ends up fatiguing mm-hmm. his jaws. So. That's not uncommon either. You'll find when people are in starvation situations, they'll they'll chew on belts, yeah. boots, anything. That happened to Literally the that happened to the Donner party. They were Wood eating bark. parts of their tent, which was just canvas. Yeah. Chase is really trying his best to keep morale up. He's assuring the crew they'll find land. Throughout this, he makes it sound like the crew's completely given up, but he's like, "No, we'll find land," which I think might just be him aggrandizing. Oh, a absolutely. <laughs> I think if you're at that point, like the the principal thought on your mind is, at what point do I just drown myself? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah. What's the trade-off here? Yeah. Suffer do longer? I, do or... I want to die of of dehydration, or yeah, do I just snarly. stick my head in and take a big gulp? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next day, January twenty fifth, Lawson Thomas, who's in the second mate's boat dies and is eaten by his crewmates. Um, nom, nom. January 27th, Isaac Shepard, who's also in the second mate's boat, dies and is eaten. Um, nom, nom. <laughs> January 28th and 29th, on Chase's boat, about two weeks of provisions remain. It's also uh, in the night between these two days, Pollard, and Pollard loses sight of Hendrick's boat. They get separated. That boat is never seen or heard from again. <laughs> That boat disappears from the face of history completely, which is really spooky. 
and I kind of love it. Not love it. I mean, it's, I mean that's not <laughs> it's, super surprising. It's very macabre, but no, not at all. It's surprising that it didn't happen sooner, honestly, from all the storms they went through. Um, I guess that a, a, a small boat was found on... Uh, uh, lots, one of the lots of small boats are found all over the place. Exactly, a small boat was found on one of the Pitcairn Islands that had three skeletons in it, and it's believed this could have been that boat. But there's no like, there's no way to definitively point to that being that boat. Um, so and the skeletons were twelve feet tall. <laughs> um, so third boat's gone forever. Pollard and his crew. They agree to sail for the island of Juan Fernandez, which is southeast of Easter Island. A man named Samuel Reed dies in uh, Pollard's boat. I'm just going to say um, Pollard and Chase's boat because Hendrick's boat is gone now forever. Um, but a man named Samuel Reed dies in Pollard's boat and is eaten. On February 1st, now this is really rough. Uh, February 1st, the, the pro- whatever small provisions were left in Pollard's boat are completely depleted. The men are starving, they're dehydrated, they're weak, they have nothing left. And they are reduced to a tradition known as casting lots. Do you know what casting lot is, lots is? I'm going to shoot from the hip yeah. and say that they draw straws. Yep. And if you draw the short straw, we are going to eat you. Bingo. And we're not just going to eat you, we're going to kill and eat you. Bingo. Oh, that's hardcore. Yeah. Really? They kill them. Yeah. Wow. Um, Fuck yeah. that, man. If I draw the short straw, I'm jumping overboard. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> You're not going to eat what me. What do you do about it? Yeah. No. So. Uh-uh. I'd rather be food for for giant isopods. Yeah, not I you, would too. Not you assholes. Yeah, for, let it. You know what? I let the grouper have me. Now, I'm if we were going to go about this democratically, and you all voted to kill and eat me, <laughs> then I'd respect I might it. think about it. <laughs> but you're not going to Anton Sugar my ass oh, and leave me at the the whims of fate. What's the most you've ever lost uh-huh. in a straw drawing? <laughs> Um, not today. <laughs> Donk. Donk. One of the sources I read said that, um, it wasn't, it wasn't literally straws. It was like pieces of cloth and one of them had like a black spot drawn on it. That's just a little detail. Just to throw in there. So who's the guy that gets to draw the spot? Uh, well. What the fuck? So, yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> He's got the spot. It's yeah. him. <laughs> no, I just drew it. Um, but yeah, regardless of whatever it was, they do end up uh, drawing straws. And this is something that apparently was not super uncommon even. This was considered a tradition of the sea. Um, I, I have to imagine sailors were probably... It, getting stranded in open ocean probably wasn't a super uncommon occurrence. And, you know... You gotta do what you gotta do to survive. They probably also thought that if they didn't go through with it, they'd be sent to like Davy Jones Locker. Yeah, that's true. Horrible afterlife. Yep. Oh, you didn't let your homeboys eat you. Damn. Eternal suffering. <laughs> so they draw straws, and the one who draws the short straw is 
poor Owen Coffin, who's Pollard's young cousin, who I mentioned, Pollard promised his mother he would take care of him and make sure nothing would happen to him. No, eat me instead. He he does, actually. Pollard offers to take his place. Um, Coffin says, no, I was chosen, which is also very noble, if that is indeed what actually happened. Um, Fuck that. I guess Pollard, uh, when hey, it happened... thanks, oh, you won. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess when it happened, Pollard, uh, he, like, jumped up, and he said something along the lines of, like, if you don't like your, if you don't like your lot, tell me, and I'll kill any man who steps to, to touch you. And Coffin just says, I like my lot as well as any other. So with that, straws are drawn again. What? <laughs> to determine... <laughs> Straws, no. Straws are drawn again. <laughs> Two out of three. <laughs> that one didn't count. No. Um, that spot could be from anything. <laughs> it was just a stain. It was already uh, there. That's a little tortoise blood. No. Uh, no. Straws are drawn this time to determine who is going to shoot poor Owen Coffin. Oh, they've still got ammo. Yep. They still have, they have a, a pistol. Him or oh, something. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Fuck that, man. If you're going to kill hands? me and eat me, you better do it like a man. Yeah. <laughs> Look into my eyes. Look me in the eyes. Wow, wow. And while you choke the life out of me. <laughs> so it's it's kind of murky who exactly uh, drew the straw to shoot him. Once a couple of reports, which I think were just like, uh, you know, newspapers sensationalizing things mm. back in the day and it's kind of persisted some reports said that pollard himself was the one who drew the executioner's straw he doesn't recount it that way um and generally it's accepted that the one who did draw the short straw was a man named charles ramsdale so regardless of whatever happened hey, someone have to make me draw a straw on yeah. here i'll fucking shoot him <laughs> regardless of make what sure happened it's a clean kill yeah Regardless of whoever it really was behind the gun, um, poor, I believe he's 17 at this point, 17-year-old Owen Coffin is shot and killed. I know. It's really sad. It's very, very tragic, the fact, almost Shakespearean, that Pollard said he would protect him and then this ends up happening. Because he really didn't have to die. I mean, for them to all make it, he was killed. But still... Um, yeah, man, I say, you know, you just wait for the next one. Yeah. You have to start blasting. Yeah, so I just started blasting. <laughs> oh. But February February 8th, we're back in a Chase's boat. Because that's grim. It's one thing if you just die. Just it's die, thing yeah. thing you kill somebody sure. needs someone. Yeah, it's, yeah, to just be a victim of circumstance. Oh, you succumb that's to dehydration, like, uh, hunger. Sure. Yeah, you're never going to have a good night's sleep again. No, but yeah, to kill him... To kill someone yeah. for the express purpose of fucking yeah. eating them. And this, as you can imagine, is something that really shook Pollard um, later in life. Because he does, I'll say he does also make it out of this. Um, he would recount the events of the tragedy. And the other survivors were kind of more cagey about it. Less open about the events. Uh, Pollard was I not. I can't imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> Pollard was not Pollard. Massive trauma. Yeah. Pollard would actually, um, he would talk about it at length with people. Because he was a psychopath. No, he was a psychopath. Um, he just, I think, dealt with it better. 
Um, and when it came to the the point in the story uh, which Coffin is killed, he he doesn't like, he won't tell that part. He says um, one of the sources said that when he was telling it and he got to that part, he just says, "I can say no more. My my head burns at the recollection," or something huh. like that. Which yeah. Uh, February 8th, 8th and 9th-ish, uh, we're back in Chase's boat. One of the crewmen, Isaac Cole, he is overcome with despair. He's pretty much completely given up. Uh, the next morning on the 9th, his speech is incoherent. He's having delusions. Mm. He uh, at, eventually just kind of becomes speechless. So I think, yeah, the effects of dehydration are mm-hmm. setting in. Uh, the crew just kind of lays him on a board and covers him with some old clothes and leave him to his fate. <laughs> yeah, fuck. He dies in a fit of convulsions. Ooh. Also around 4 p.m. Everyone who I've said who has died so far, Chase estimates that they've died around 4 p.m., which, why? Oh, that famous Chase <laughs> estimation. <laughs> Dead accuracy. So, I don't, I mean, you can tell by the sun's position, but it's just, it's weird. <laughs> all of them at 4 p.m. It was just always 4 p.m. <laughs> so, he dies. He is not immediately committed to the sea. Uh, the next morning. Oh, what a bunch of crap. They don't even need him. Well. But they shot and killed that kid. Well, hold on. Uh, well, remember, that was Pollard's boat. This is Chase's boat. Uh, I thought they were sharing. No. Oh. Um, remember Chase and uh, Chase and Pollard. Oh, they and were the other boat separated. Got separated. Yeah. And then Pollard lost sight of Hendrick's boat, which is gone forever. Um, but the next morning after he dies, Chase knows. He knows. He knows that provisions are not going to last. Not even oh, the next so they three days. Eaten anyone on Chase's boat? No. Yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> But Chase realizes how dire their position is. They have, have they eaten like three guys on the other boat? Yeah. <laughs> the They've just been munching on the other boats. Like, like it's going out of style. That's <laughs> why I'm also like, maybe. <laughs> I don't know about the stuff uh, Chase says sometimes. <laughs> but he's. A little bit of a fibber. Um, but he, by his estimate, provisions aren't going to last the next three days. So he suggests to the crew to use his body for food before committing him to the sea. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll use him for food. Use him for food. He says the men agreed without objection. Feed him to the tortoise. Which I can't even begin to imagine this scenario. The, the desperation, the hunger you must be experiencing to even consider eating someone else. Uh, I can, but I wouldn't, <laughs> I, mean? I mean, I wouldn't hesitate for a fucking second. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. But I, I, gotta I look out for number one, you know, sorry. Sure, <laughs> Jesus. I, I, yeah. I'm going to lose sleep over it, but no, no if I'm, gonna, I'm I, in that situation, like yeah. that, that soccer team that, you know, crashed into the Andes. Oh, I have an episode about that. I'm too. doing that every time. They were rugby. Um, same thing. So yeah, he says they agree without objection which might be true, might not. I, if it could easily, to me, it could also just be like, well, they all, they were all cool with it too, so yeah. don't get on my case. Um, but regardless, they proceed to process Isaac Cole. 
They cut his limbs from his body. They remove the flesh from his bones. They remove his heart. Do they crack his bones open too? I don't know. Uh, they also well, you've got all the other graphic details. Yeah, that's all. This is all that Chase says. <laughs> they take out his heart and they sew his chest back up, which thanks, I guess. And they commit what is left of him to the sea. Mm. Uh, they ate the heart immediately, mm. and yeah, really interesting. You'd think would, they'd be going after like livers and stuff. I would have eaten the brain. Or vitamins. Right. Uh, you don't want to eat human brain. No? I don't Why? think that they would have known that in 19th century. Because you'll get super you get smart. Prions. Prions? Yeah. What is that? Prions are, from what I understand, they're basically misfolded proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't sound good. When you in, well, yeah, because they're totally dysfunctional as proteins. Yeah. And then when you ingest them, uh, it teaches or your dna looks at that and goes oh that's how that protein is built and it your your cells build proteins completely oh dysfunctional no. and have a massive cascading effect damn that sucks mad cow disease is caused by by prions by eating they, brain they were feeding bits of cow to other cows oh god yeah and famously like people who eat like monkey brain you get a nasty prion <laughs> you heard it so, so yeah, you don't want to eat. Don't eat brain. Brain. Well, you don't eat brains of uh, a similar species. That mm, you are. Makes sense. Monkeys are close enough to us. We're primates. Yeah. yeah. I was just thinking about because bald eagles, being the little freeloaders they are, when they scare something off from a kill, they eat the brain first because that's the most nutrient dense part of the body. Okay. And then they yeah, but they they're eating out. like fish brains. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I'm using bird a logic. A note to all the listeners. Um, don't eat your homeboy's brains. Don't eat your homie's brains. Yeah. Throw that shit in the trash. So. <laughs> <laughs> they commit. No. <laughs> compost it. Compost it. Jesus. You can't compost meat. I'm pretty sure you can. No, it doesn't, process it doesn't it. break down as much. That's why you break it down. You don't just toss it in the bin. I'm not a composter. I should be. So, yeah, they commit his scraps to the sea. They eat the heart immediately and some flesh. Uh, they cook some to preserve for later, and then they hang some in the sun. Ooh, jerky them. Yum, yeah. Uh, the next day, the flesh is starting to turn green Ooh. and become tainted. Looks like it was a little bit wet out there. Yeah. On the ocean? No way. Uh, so they cook it to prevent it from spoiling. They do not touch their bread rations for now. How because they, cook it? Uh, they still have stuff to make a fire that Chase brought from the island. Thankfully. I guess thankfully. <laughs> Seems a little bit foolish to build a fire on a little wooden boat. Yeah, a little. Um, but yeah, they leave their bread rations alone for now because they know that those won't spoil. Uh, the next yeah, all day... All eight ounces of bread. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> all three days left of bread. <laughs> on uh, February 11th in Pollard's boat, one of his other crewmen, Barzillai Ray, dies. Uh, his and Coffin's body provide food for Pollard and the only other surviving man on that boat, Ramsdell. So we're down to uh, five men total, which is Pollard and Ramsdale on that boat. Uh, Owen Chase, Thomas oh, Nickerson. Yeah. Owen Chase, Thomas Nickerson, and uh, what, Benjamin there were, Lawrence. There were 14 or, or 30. You said there was, it was there six, was, six and eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or six, six and seven. So. Well, I was counting math. two tortoises as one 19? man. <laughs> <laughs> That's only 19. Six. No, seven, seven, and six. I did research on this. 
on uh, February 15th in Chase's boat, they ate the last of what was left of Isaac Cole. Uh, their limbs, he says, are starting to become swollen and painful. And again, they're only down to three days of provisions and about 300 miles from the nearest land. So things are looking bleak. Only for a little bit. Because on February 18th, or February 17th, I suppose, young Thomas Nickerson, who I think is 15 years old at this time, he has kind of just completely given up. And he lays down in the boat and is just kind of wailing for death to take him <laughs> at this point. Which, he's 15. He's a kid. I can't even imagine. Get it? Wailing? Okay. <laughs> uh, Chase tries to comfort him, but he's just, he's gone. He's probably lost his mind. Yeah. I, yeah. And February 18th, 7 a.m., Benjamin Lawrence is on watch. He's scanning the horizon. Land ho! He sees something, and he's like, what the hell is that? So he Biggest squints. Whale <laughs> oh no, another one. He's back. <laughs> and he's bigger than before. <laughs> oh shit. And he brought friends. 95 feet. But he sees something on the horizon. And he's like, am I actually seeing that? He looks closer. He realizes what he is, what it is. He jumps up and shouts, There's a sail. It's about seven miles off from the boat. The other two men, uh, Owen and Thomas, they are, like, reinvigorated by this. And they immediately tack the sails in her direction, and they sail to intercept her. Uh, which, thankfully, they were able to do, because, again, they're in a tiny whale boat, which is designed to be light and fast. So they catch up. Um, the ship notices them, shortens sail, the boat comes up alongside her. I can't even fucking imagine the sight in this boat. Yeah. <laughs> of these three grim. gaunt, ghastly... With man meat hanging out to dry. <laughs> Dehydrated, malnourished. Um, they're not even able to climb onto the ship without assistance. Um, but they do. The other uh, men aboard help them up. And the boat that has saved them is the Indian out of London, captained by a William Crozier. Well, I wonder if he's at all related to the Crozier from the John Franklin expedition, which I also want to cover. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so they're saved. Oh, I was trying to, okay, I was trying to remember where I heard Crozier before. Mm-hmm. General Crozier, uh, he's... He's uh, one of the antagonists in Metalocalypse. Oh, shit. <laughs> I thought you knew what I was talking about. I was like, oh, yeah, the Franklin expedition. Yeah, he gets enslaved by uh, Mr. Salacious. <laughs> Mr. Salacious. Salacia. Mr. Salacia. So, yeah. Crozier from Metalocalypse. Uh, they explained to him that they are from the Essex. At this point, everyone back in Nantucket thinks they're fucking dead. Uh, and he explains, you know, no, we survived. We're from a, a whaling boat that sank. We need help. Uh, the men are fed and provided for. Um, Chase also doesn't mention about the other three survivors left on the island. <laughs> Which... Probably forgot. Probably. <laughs> I don't... I... Truly, I don't think I trust this man as far as I can throw him. <laughs> Uh, not long after, five days after their rescue on February 23rd, 
this is kind of uh, providence, what happens. Pollard and Ramsdale are, again, the only two men, the only two men remaining in that boat. They are rescued by none other than a Nantucket ship called the Dauphin, hmm. and it is captained by a man named Captain Zimri Coffin. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. It's one hell of a name. Yeah, well. Zimri. Zimri. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Pollard is the one who tells the captain about the three men who are left. He tells them Ducey Island, but like I mentioned, where they landed was actually Henderson Island. Yeah, well, that's what they thought. Yeah. So, the ship that goes to save that man, those men, goes to Ducey Island, and there's nobody there. Thankfully, the captain uh, thought to check the other islands, and they did go to Henderson and find the three men who were still alive and Is it rescued. Part of an archipelago. I'm not sure. I looked at the map and I erased it from my brain. I guess. Um, February 25th, Chase Chase's crew arrives in uh, Valparaiso, Chile, and on March 27th, Pollard and Ramsdale arrive there too. It's a little port in Chile. They kind of rendezvous and get rides back to Nantucket from there. On January 11th, 1821, Chase returns to Nantucket along with Charles Ramsdale, Benjamin Lawrence, and Thomas Nickerson on the whale ship Eagle, which is captained by a, another coffin, a William H. Coffin. On August 21st, Pollard returns to Nantucket on a ship called the Two Brothers. Apparently, uh, when he returned... He was met by a completely silent crowd, and he just walked through them as they just stared at him, which is pretty crazy. He is pretty maligned by Nantucketers after this, because... <laughs> Pollard. Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why him? For one, he was the captain of this disastrous voyage. Oh, he didn't sail into the whale. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he wasn't even on the boat when it happened. Yeah. Um, what was he going to do? But it's because um, he did kill and eat his cousin, which, yeah. I wouldn't condemn him for that. I'd be like, shit, probably really hard. Sorry you had to go through that. But yeah. I, I, mean, I boo-hoop, you know, people in Nantucket don't <laughs> like me. Now, as for the surviving crew, um, I'm only going to go through the three that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the big three. Um, because the other ones just kind of disappear into relative obscurity. Um, however, all men do return to the sea after their rescue. They continue either whaling or working on vessels in some capacity. I talk about taking a hint. <laughs> For real? Fucking step ship, step foot on a ship after this. Um, for Captain George Pollard Jr., he actually went on to command the ship that brought him home to Nantucket, the two brothers, uh, shortly after he returned. Unfortunately, <laughs> this ship would also sink 15 <laughs> months later after running aground on a coral reef in the Pacific. Uh, did he make it? Yeah, he did. Wow. One of the accounts said that he just kind of stood on the wreck as it went down and his men like urged him to jump onto the boats, <laughs> which... I think he was trying to kind of like, you know, make up for 
I don't know. I think he felt he survived. bad. About, yeah, he did. He did. He ended up getting on the boats. I'm but... just picturing the the intro scene to the first Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> he's on the mast. Johnny Depp. Yeah, he's drifting into port <laughs> as the the fucking entire <laughs> boat is already underwater. Um. Thankfully, the men escaped the wreck. Everyone lived in their whale boats, and they were rescued the next day. However, this was, again, only Pollard's second voyage as captain. So he's two for two in terms of uh, unfortunate endings to these these whaling voyages. Um, He gains a very unfortunate reputation after this. He becomes (laughs) what is known as a Jonah, which is like a... Got swallowed by a whale. Yeah. Uh, it's just to say you're like uh, you're doomed for a ship. If you step on a ship, it's not going to go well. You'll curse the ship, basically. So he retires from whaling. He never goes whaling again after this. <laughs> and he ends up sailing only once more on a merchant vessel and then uh, retires to Nantucket as a grocer. He would... Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> from being a captain of those. Pathetic Pollard. Oh, my God. <laughs> I bet people called him that, too. No. Uh, he would later spend 13 years serving as a night watchman at, in Nantucket before dying in 1870 at the, the age of, at the age of 78. Not bad. No, not bad at all. A lot of these men did die old, which is pretty crazy. Each year on the anniversary of the incident, he would also privately fast in honor of those who died. Owen Coffin's mother never forgave him for what he did. And I don't think yeah, she ever I mean, spoke to him again after this. I that. Yeah, because he did, yeah, promise her and he ate him. <laughs> so, as for Owen Chase, he did actually have a very successful whaling career in the Pacific for the next 20 years. He mostly operated out of New Bedford. Uh, at this time, Nantucket was kind of losing its, its prestige as a whaling port and it was being overtaken by New Bedford. He rose to captaincy and actually became the partial owner of a ship called the Charles Carroll, and he retired in 1840. He seemed to have a pretty major mental health decline towards the end of his life. Um, There was a letter from a female family member of his who notes that he's basically gone insane. Mm. Um, There are some reports of him hoarding food in the rafters of his home in his later years. Some heavy PTSD. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, a lot of these men did not like to talk about this. Um, Would you? (laughs) No. Only Pollard really did, and (laughs) that's crazy to me. I don't give a shit. I'll tell you this. Everyone already fucking hates me. (laughs) Um, But Chase, uh, he would die in 1869 in his uh, 70s. Thomas Nickerson, again, who was the youngest man on this ship, uh, he would serve on whaling vessels until the 1830s. He eventually found work on cargo ships until about the 1870s, and then by then he was older. He and his wife Margaret returned to Nantucket, and they opened a boarding house there. Like I said, he also wrote. House, huh? mm-hmm. He also wrote his own account of the tragedy, but uh, he tried to get it published, but it fell through, and it would not be discovered and published until the 1980s, long after he died. How does something like that fall through? I, don't, uh, I guess he was trying to get it published by someone who was like a, a pulp editor. Uh, mm-hmm. who wrote really sensational stories, uh, but for some reason... Oh, some nothing reason, about this story was sensational. No, not at all. Uh, interestingly, actually, a lot of... Uh, this story was, as you can imagine, pretty well circulated on Nantucket. Elsewhere in the world? Not so much. Um, 
I think I mean, it's it's a pretty common story, I'd imagine, you know? Not too many people are are going out of the way to read about shipwrecks. Yeah. But it's the 1820s. Other things are happening in the world. All right. Um, But anyway... Isn't Napoleon messing around in 1820? Yeah, he was. That's probably why. <laughs> I know I care about some fucking whaler from Nantucket. Napoleon's trying to take over Europe. <laughs> um, but yeah, Thomas, his account would be published later on in the 1980s. I couldn't find his, but apparently it's a really good compliment to Owens because um, it includes some stuff that he omitted and it goes into more detail about the events before the incident. He would die in 1883, also at the age of 78, his late 70s. So the year of this incident, there was somebody who was born, who in his time would not be a very well-known or even well-received author. Uh, Shel Silverstein. Sure. Um, (laughs) But having grown up hearing about this incident having read the very account from Owen that was given to him by one of Owen's own sons, William, and having spent his own time on whaling ships, this man, in 1851, about 30 years after the incident, published a book. Do you know what the book was? I'll tell you the author's name. Mm. The author was a guy named Herman Melville. Oh, uh, The Da Vinci Code. Yes. (laughs) He published a little book called Moby Dick that was about a crew of whalers out of Nantucket uh, on a ship called the Pequod, captained by a man named Ahab, who wanted revenge against a great white whale that had chewed him up (laughs) (laughs) that's what happens Um, Moby Dick fucking bombed when it came out it received lukewarm reviews and was considered a commercial failure it wouldn't receive its uh, classic status until well into the 20th century, when there was kind of a Melville revival. But that is probably how m- most people would have heard of this incident, is knowing it to be the inspiration behind the story of Moby Dick. Herman Melville actually had never been to Nantucket before writing this book, um, and he only visited for the first time in 1852. Well, next you're going to tell me he never actually hunted whales. He, d- he did. From what I understand, he hated it. He didn't like it. Oh, really? Whaling. He was actually a whaler. Yeah, he was. Um, but he visited Nantucket for the first time in 1852. There he met none other than Pollard, Captain Pollard. Uh, he had a conversation with him, talked more about the incident, what happened, the book itself, and at the end of it... Melville described him as, quote, the most impressive man, though wholly unassuming, even humble, that I ever encountered. Which is really sweet. And especially considering all the shit that people threw Pollard's away after this. I really feel for him. And after everything that happened. First time being a captain, your ship sinks by no fault of your own. Uh, You'd be surprised to learn whales do in fact still exist today. (laughs) They don't just exist in the context of whaling in the 1800s. There is some question as to why this whale tact apparently unprovoked. I don't know if unprovoked is the word I would use. They were like actively killing his family while they were, while he attacked them. Um, This, however, is not a normal means of a whale defending itself. Uh, whales are very peaceful. 
They don't just ram boats willy-nilly. However, there are other instances of whales sinking ships seemingly on purpose, or as on purpose as an animal can make something be uh, throughout history. The most famous is probably, after the Essex, is the Anne Alexander. This was also sunk in the offshore grounds in 1851, the same year Moby Dick was published. Usually by breaching, isn't it? Yeah. Breaching on top Mm -hmm. of the ship. Which, again, is not done with malicious intent by the whale. And it ends up actually kind of fucking up the whale that way, too. Um, But yeah, sometimes a whale can breach. Doesn't see what's under it when it lands, and lands on a boat, crushes it. Um, There's also another vessel, the Kathleen. Every time I read that word, I want to say it like, Kathleen. (laughs) You're killing me, Kathleen. Uh, The Kathleen was ran by a whale and sunk in the Atlantic. There was also the King Oscar... This one was kind of funny. Um, this one was attacked by a whale that was actually kind of chilling with them at first. It hung out with the boat for about three days, and they thought it was friendly. <laughs> and that's scouting that's how we got him. <laughs> Betrayal always comes from the front. Um, but yeah, I don't know what happened. It turned on him, and uh, yeah. And ended up attacking the boat, um, and it sunk all the way to Newcastle Port. This was out by Australia in 1871. There was also the Danish schooner Anna that was attacked by a, quote, frisky whale in 1904. So it seems this isn't super uncommon-ish. It's just unusual that a sperm whale would do this, because their normal means of defense is something called a marguerite formation. They don't really have many natural predators except for the one thing that kills fucking everything in the ocean, which is the killer whale. (laughs) And the Marguerite formation is their primary defense tactic. And what it is tactic, what it is, is the members of a pod will form a ring with their tails facing outward and the young of the pod will be in the center. Any killer whale comes from the sides, they'll smack him. Which, I have to ask, sperm whales, what if he comes from the bottom? <laughs> then what will you do? But Smack him. Smack him from the front. Um, when they first encountered, encountered whalers, this would be their means of defense against them. Uh, which, unfortunately, made them easy targets. They, however, in what is considered a very extraordinary case of rapid cultural evolution which was previously believed to only be something humans uh, humans could undergo, they developed new tactics. They learned to communicate danger of a whale ship to the rest of the pod, and they would swim upwind so the ships couldn't follow them. Um, and this happened much faster than any kind of genetic behavior because of the speed the behavior developed at. So like I said rapid cultural evolution, which is pretty extraordinary to happen in mammals outside of humans. Um, Which maybe that's what happened here. This was just a new tactic that this whale developed on its own. It was just big mad. It was just big mad. Um, The state of whaling. So whales would be commercially hunted until uh, a 1988 moratorium uh, put a stop to it. There are still some small-scale, isolated operations, mostly illegal, that do still occur today. Uh, but for the most part, whales are not hunted anymore on a large scale. 
Today, there are approximately 360,000 sperm whales living, compared to pre-whaling estimates of about 1.1 million individuals. In 1964 alone, 29,255 sperm whales were killed uh, during what is considered the peak of modern whaling operations. Today, threats currently facing these species are, like I said, these small-scaled, isolated whaling operations, Collisions with ships is a big one, ingestion of inedible debris, interactions with fisheries, underwater noise and uh, water pollution, sonar is confirmed to have killed a lot of whales already, and uh, more natural culprit disease. Overfishing. Overfishing. Ocean acidification. (laughs) That too. Algal blooms. They have a lot going on. Uh, But we can help them. We can definitely help them. There's a couple of whale, uh, conservation organizations that you can donate to today. I would recommend looking into the American Cetacean Society. They're a nonprofit 501c organization. They're also the world's oldest whale conservation organization. They have chapters located all throughout the West Coast from San Diego hey, to Seattle. And each chapter offers different local events related to whale conservation and education. They'll have speakers, conferences, fundraisers, things like that. And last I checked, they are looking to add more chapters to the East Coast in the future. There's also Ocean Alliance. They're a nonprofit research and conservation organization. Their goal is to save whales through public education, conservation efforts with activists and government groups, and scientific collaboration with various research programs across the globe. And with that... Don't eat whales. Don't eat whales. Eat your cousin. <laughs> eat your cousin's brain. And uh, don't go whaling, period. Don't set islands on fire. Don't, don't do funny pranks and set islands on fire. Don't abduct tortoise. Don't kidnap 600 tortoises and let most of them die in a shipwreck. Goons. And, uh... Do write, uh, do write a book that will bomb in your lifetime, but will <laughs> be very successful long after you're gone. So yeah, that concludes the story of the, uh, the whale ship Essex, attacked, stove in by a whale. I'm going to post the sources that I used for this because I used a lot. Again, I still don't know how much uh, research is an appropriate amount, amount for a one and a half hour episode, but... <laughs> Uh, I'll post all those in the show notes. I'll also probably make like a little Dropbox or everything where I'll put all the sources. Um, But yeah, that concludes this week. I will talk to you again next week. Next week's going to be a bear episode. Sneak peek. Get excited. The first of many. (laughs) With that, I... uh, What's Tisdale? Who? Um, Treadwell? Treadwell, yeah. Soon. Not next week. I don't know why I mixed him up with Ashley Tisdale. (laughs) (laughs) He's coming soon. Uh, Yeah, with that, I uh, I thank you for tuning in so much. I really do appreciate it. Um, I know this first episode is a little messy, but I'm learning, and I'm sick. Um, And uh, I really hope to uh, see see you guys tune in next week. Thank you so much again. In Gaia, we trust. Bye. Bye.